And uh, I've recorded 150 episodes of Triangle Squared. I've recorded 149. Hello, and welcome to my 150th episode of Triangle Square to PlayStation Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Beck, and alongside me every week except for that one. Actually, when you think about it, I'm Saul Bridges, and this is episode lucky 150. But when you think about it, I have recorded 150 episodes. Oh, dude. Just nobody's ever known about it. That is also true, but if we want to go into the de- the depths of that, we've recorded... Like 154? Uh, we've recorded the uh, episodes that were like live stream watch-alongs. We've recorded our impressions episodes. We I've recorded stuff uh, when we were at PSX. There's been all sorts of stuff. Well, those at PSX were actually numbered on YouTube. It's like Were they? Yeah. Well, like a point five. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I'm talking about like we like legitimately recorded an episode like two weeks ago. Which would have made last week. 150? Yeah, yeah technically. I thought maybe you were talking about episode zero that no one's seen, but uh, no, you're, that, you're right. If, if that's the case, been... I have seven episodes of a Let's Play you don't have on me, so <laughs> I think I outnumber you there. Okay, fair enough. All right, uh, anyway, uh, we are Triangle Square to PlayStation Podcast, and if this is your first time joining us, first of all, welcome. Uh, we talk about PlayStation every week, and of course, everything that has to deal with PlayStation, which uh, means other publishers like EA, uh, Ubisoft, uh, Bethesda, all those things. Uh, but we also talk about their competition in the way of uh, manufacturers like Nintendo or Microsoft, things that we see all the companies doing that we'd either like to see Sony uh, mimic and copy because we like or, or take their own uh, hand at it or things that we see the other companies doing that we prefer Sony uh, to not do, uh, of course, just in our opinions. Uh, in the course of this show, uh, despite obviously being big PlayStation fans, um, Go ahead and tell you right now, our goal in this show is to never just completely demean or belittle the people who like Xbox or Xbox as a whole. Uh, I've had plenty of times where Xbox and uh, and Nintendo both have given me great gaming experiences, and uh, it just so happens that PlayStation does it more for me, so that's uh, where I tend to put my hat. But with that said... Yeah, we're not Sony ponies. This is our 150th episode, if we've not already mentioned that a number of times, which we have. Um and because of that, we like to do these kind of milestone episodes a little differently. We never like them to just feel like they're normal episodes of the show. Uh, so with that in mind, we're going to do things a little differently today. One of the things we are going to do is, of course, start to show off the way that we always do, the correct way, and then uh, still going to go through our community's take. But after that, it's going to be a little bit more open-structured and, uh, and us just kind of talking and, and hanging out and, um, and, and doing what we can. But uh, to that end, uh, with all the stuff we have to talk about, that does not mean that we skip our niceties and our openings and we say right now Saul what have you been up to because I legitimately have seen you very little this week yeah you seem like you've been busy at work I haven't well I mean at work I was but like when I got home I haven't like felt great the past couple like days slash week at this point so like I, I really haven't played a whole lot um which is a very common saying it seems lately for me but I I've Normally, I at least hop on Red Dead Online for like a day or two out of the week at the very minimal, or Apex or Dark Souls or something, but I haven't hopped on anything this week at all um, during the week except for Dark Souls 3 for like an hour, and that's kind of like one of my comfort games. Like when I don't feel good, I just kind of want to play Dark Souls 3, or when I have a game like where I don't want to concentrate on something else, um, or I I don't want to have to concentrate on it, uh, it's going to be Dark Souls 3. But yeah, this week I just haven't felt great at all. And I'm still like, I still don't feel that great today, but I did 
But you're here, and we thank you. Yes. On Thursday, I watched Final Fantasy XV Brotherhood, which was like the uh, five-episode anime. Did you watch it on YouTube since that's where it was originally released? Yeah. I figured. It's 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 good. I actually really like it. It is good, and it, and it fixed a massive problem. I, I wouldn't even say massive at this point, but it, it did fix a, a flaw of the game for me. And that was, and I still think this, because I did play Final Fantasy XV. I'll get to that here in a minute. But... One of my biggest things was how Final Fantasy XV drops you into the world. It has this really cool cutscene of, of, of the kingdom and everything around it. But then it drops you into the middle of nowhere, like you pushing a car. Mm-hmm. And it never really expounds, at least early into the game, it never really expounds on who these other people are with you and why you should care about them. Mm-hmm. So, and that's one of my big pet peeves in a game. So I couldn't, I couldn't find a reason to care for them. And when you really think about it, a lot of Final Fantasy games have done really good jobs of giving these characters backstories. Like you think of, of, of Yuna from Final Fantasy um, X, or you think of Ash from Final Fantasy XII, or even uh, Tifa from Final Fantasy VII, or Barrett. You have these people with these really cool backstories, and you're actually like, dang, these, these are cool and well-written characters. But you tend um, to not know that as soon craft. as you come in. But oh, yeah. yeah, just in Back case the episode audio. goes down, then you guys will be starting this and you'll be like, oh, why is the video not there? And it's because of this. But, um, or is Mixcraft just not? Oh, there we go. No, I had time clicking in from dealing with music stuff. Okay. Not bad. No, no problem. But, anyway, um, glad. Good, good catch. Uh, but one thing, real quick, um, I, I, I see some of your points. Uh, uh, and to two things, and this is something that I think is uh, definitely uh, up for opinion as the best way to do it. Uh, I think that with 15, they wanted to try and mimic the idea of being able to build out a world like they did with 7 so much. That 7 was like, well, we're going to build out a world from it now because it got popular when we didn't realize it was going to get this popular. So we're going to capitalize on that by continuing to do more within that world. Whereas 15, it was like, well, we want this to be as popular as 7 if possible. So we're going to hit the storm. We're going to hit the ground running with multiple movies and tie-ins to build the world. So... You know, Kingsglaive and uh, I think Kingsglaive dropped the same day as Final Fantasy 15 and Brotherhood came out like a month Which in advance. Which is weird because to me, I've heard people say this. Have you seen Kingsglaive? No, I've yet to watch it. Okay. Even though I, I literally I own it with the version of the game I so, got. But. Supposedly it spoils the end of the game uh, or, tor- or stuff about the end of the game. That's why you're only supposed to watch it like at a certain, I think it's chapter 12. Well, I think that's where people are now. Like they've come to that. But of course, as they were saying, you watch it whenever you want to originally but yeah of course people will play and figure out where they think the uh, the optimal time to introduce that information is uh but the other part of my story is uh the other part of my my thing about that is while i still see your point i think almost every final fantasy game does a thing of throwing you into characters and letting you see them without explaining who they are or why you should care about them that's almost every final fantasy game final fantasy 7 throws you into the beginning of a lot of stuff going on and you're you're learning about these people while you're side by side with them it's 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 almost like an active game thing that they do i mean a lot of stories do this actually movies do it as well well uh, and but I, I just think that you it must be for you a a disconnect with how they chose to go about it's not even that. building that characters I, up with you i've gotten all the way to altissia before in this game there is never once exposition on these other characters 
in the game there like there is in with Barrett or tifa or or waka or anybody like again, that differently it, it's and and that's why i think it comes down to they they they're doing it but they're choosing to execute it in a different way uh, and i think it depends on how much well, you care it. what you're doing so a lot of it happens and this is for but other games do this to a much better extent this was their attempt and a lot of this a lot of 15 to me is first attempts at things you've never seen in the series but that's to true. various degrees of success um one of the things they attempted to do was let natural dialogue that happens in an open world, since we've never had an open world Final Fantasy before necessarily. Um, when It's like, okay, well, now you're going through the open world. Traveling is a big part of it. Obviously, the car is a big part of it. So when you're going around and either riding chuckaboos or ride, driving in the car, you're going to have, uh, because your characters are at a rest, you know, and you're kind of just going through and doing these things, it's like we're going to let natural dialogue happen between these people to try and build a sense of friendship that is is natural and not like everything is forced lines that were scripted. Instead, it's like, oh, well, we're in the car. I'm going to tell you a story or do something that shows who I am as a character and what my interests are. Yeah, but and again, it does it to various degrees of success. The problem with this, though, is that every one of these characters have no Noctis and specifically Prompto has no Noctis since they were at least 12 years old. And you never, the game never makes you feel like that. They to me now that I've known that I've been looking for that I have yet to see that these guys have have grown up with each other. He's known Gladio's known him since he was a teenager, and uh, Ignis I believe more towards like college. But even then, it's just like one of those things was what, what Brotherhood taught me was hey Brotherhood is this five uh, episode arc going over each character and why they are important in Noctis's journey, and yeah. I loved it for that. But it's not in the game. And that's the issue. And, and that's why yeah. Brotherhood fixed that problem for me. And to give you credit to that, it's impossible for me as someone who watched Brotherhood before playing 15. It's impossible for me. It's probably that everything I saw within 15 was like, oh, yeah, it's happening back into what I saw in Brotherhood. Yeah. You know, uh, so and, the and, thing, I, and I didn't know that's what Brotherhood was. I yeah. thought Brotherhood was, and, and it kind of is, but I, I thought Brotherhood was a simple lead up of, of little events that lead to the intro of the game. And that kind of is what happens with the whole fighting the demon snake uh, in brotherhood that's an overarching story that actually happens and then they drive the car off and presumably later in that trip because that's that same trip with them going to Atisia is where they break down and that's where the game starts but the thing was that brotherhood taught me was that hey these people have known each other prompto's story was really well done mm -hmm. that should have been in the game I'm, I'm i'm fine that it's not because brotherhood's a free media that you can go and watch but damn it was that like yeah if you had to pay feeling, for brotherhood different yeah i would actually feel that's a how i feel about well. the dlc <laughs> well the dlc and, I, and I, we'll get to that in a minute i mean i don't want to rehash too much of last week's episode because well, oh i think it's going a little bit differently though just because i am to this extent enjoying myself a little bit more i'm still facing the problems that i had with 15 originally and that is if you go around in 15's world the world is just so empty Yes, it's a and, very empty, and the problem with it is it's too big. It I is. actually think the world would feel more populated if they would have shrunk the size of it down. Yeah, if and it's they wouldn't have to do it too much, or if they just populate the world like they do in in Final Fantasy fifth or fourteen. Fourteen's world, you can't walk a hundred steps in one direction without coming across at least two monsters, or it's very rare that in some spots that you can't. But. Yeah, Final Fantasy 15, like like I said in the last week's episode, the story always seemed interesting, even though the more I'll play it now, it's like, this is kind of 12 story in a really loose way. But um, but yeah, the story is interesting. The characters are now interesting to me. Uh, the designs and stuff of, of all the characters are really cool. It's just getting getting through the game at the points like, like what I'm doing now. I am in chapter two. So I am two chapters before Altissia, I think, or is it? 
four. I think Altissia is chapter six. But I don't remember. I am. I'm still kind of in that spot of I'm doing nothing but fetch quest in a way. Like it was go talk to Cindy. Oh, Cindy, go say this guy named Dave. Oh, Dave, go do this bounty hunt. Then Dave will take you back. And then you got to go find core and core is like, Hey, go to this uh, Royal tomb. And then you get to that Royal tomb. He's like, Hey, go to this other Royal tomb. There's a lot of exposition in those parts, but with the whole startup, it, I, I agree. The in between of the parts when you're it's, traveling and just like, it's almost oh, this is like, so boring. yeah, it's almost like what people said with death stranding was that the story moments were really well done, but in between it, they found it tedious and mm-hmm. I can see that. And that's what I'm, that's kind of my ordeal with final fantasy 15, but I am enjoying myself more. Yeah. I still don't know if I will ever finish the game. I'm going to certainly try. Um, I don't know if I'm gonna have any more time today to, f- to play any more of it, but, uh, yeah, like at this point I'm, I, I, I'm doing what I said I don't, I, I'll do, and I've, I've said before millions of times. I will never take a game that has had any interest to me and shut it down in one try or try to shut it down in one go. I'll at least always give it a second chance. I did it with Nier, and that was the game that really taught me my lesson was that I did it with Nier, and it became one of my favorite games of the generation. Yeah. And that game didn't even have the fundamental problems that Final Fantasy has to me. Um, that game just didn't catch my interest. The same with Witcher 3. I may go back. I, ironically... Final Fantasy 15 is very reflective of Witcher 3 to me. Witcher 3, I didn't play the first two games, so I couldn't connect with the characters or the world. This game, I kind of feel the same way. I can't connect to the characters, but that's not because there's games prior to that. It's, it's just because in the game, they're not really done as well as I'd like them to be. Well, and there but is then other Brotherhood, media. yeah, then Brotherhood gave me the reasons why now. Yeah, And it's kind of the same kind of way. The, game, the, quest, the, the, the quest can seem a little fetchy in nature, but there are really cool story quests in between. And... You know, I'm giving it my all. Where I think I'll, I'll tie the line is that if I get to chapter, I think that the way you're supposed to play is that at chapter seven, you're supposed to watch Kingsglaive. I think it, it might. No, I'm thinking of when when to play a character. I think chapter twelve is when you watch Kingsglaive. I forgot what it is. Yeah, but you're supposed to interject these character DLCs and stuff in between. And, it de- and and maybe when you play it that way, it is a lot better of experience. But I do think it's at least a worthy experience. I, I'm, it's it's a hard word to use worthy because that's a very subjective. But I mean, clearly there's a lot there that was still good the first time around after so much into it. The start is slow for a number of reasons. I think that, again, there are various degrees of success of trying to do different things. In the beginning, I think they're trying to give you a sense of, oh, well, you're just supposed to be out and, and doing all these things, and you think you're having this free experience with all these people, but then you are met with the uh, the weight and grief of your father's death death and all the things that come with that. Um Spoilers. And well, but it's super early game, and it, and it was it, it was communicated across all the marketing. End of chapter. So one, I don't mind. I don't mind saying that. Uh, but you know, it is interesting going back to your Brotherhood point that uh, maybe it shouldn't have been reliant on Brotherhood, but thankfully it was free and it was out before the game, so at least everybody had the opportunity to just as, as long as you had time to spare, more or less, you could watch it. But um, you know, you were talking about. And again, I couldn't experience it that way. You might be right on the it never feeling like these people have known each other for a long time. But to me, after when I watched Brotherhood and started playing the game, I was like, ah, yeah, this is exactly what you'd expect from what Brotherhood sets up. It's like, okay, 
these are people who've known Noctis for a long time, but they've known him as a teenager and a kid. And it's almost all, almost all of them have been people who are tangentially tied to him because of his royalty and his yeah, status and his father. Like Gladio being his bodyguard. Uh, so it's almost like they're being his cook. Yeah. So the game does a lot of things that show and reflect, Oh, these are two people that just feel like they're like, they they feel like they're having to babysit, or I should say this: the game actually does a lot to show that they care about Noctis, but Noctis is kind of in this world of like, do they only care about me because they were supposed to, and maybe they were paid to by my father? And the game actually does a lot. Eventually, throughout the game, you'll yeah. see to make it to where it's like, oh no, this actually is a tight knit group of yeah. friends uh, of people who, while brought together for that really superfluous reason, they actually did forge their own friendship and, and stuff together. Um, and like I said, the, the game is a real mixed pot of success and failure. It really, it is. truly is. And I think, I honestly think that like if what I'm playing through, like because like I said, I am enjoying it more, but like I really do think that it was one of those things of seeing, you know, Royal Edition, and it's kind of like, well, that is the definitive way to play the game. But a Final Fantasy, you know, a massive single player style story that's that's high fantasy shouldn't rely on a, on something like that. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad that there it's there now. I just to me, it still kind of makes me mad about launch. And it's almost with this whole experience, I've almost have did have have come to the conclusion that I will not get Final Fantasy remake on launch. Final Fantasy seven. I, I decided what I'm going to do. I'm not going to wait until it's all out. I'm going to wait until see what the second chapter brings and where you're at at the end. Because that's going to give me a good scope of how long this will all be. Sure. And, you, so you mean more of like let people play it for like a month or so and kind of get be able to look up an idea of where you would be in that without going. Too well, I know far. where it's going to be after the first chapter. I'm talking about chapter two. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. But. No, well, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, even then, we know where chapter one's ending and nobody's. Touched oh it. no, no. Okay, I get what you're saying. Not chapter of the game. The the uh, the episode, episode. I guess. Yeah. Release. Okay. Yes. I yeah. understand. I, I want to be able to see like. You know, episode two is coming out and you're going to end it here or there in the story. And I'm like, okay, now I know that this covers 40 hours at least. So then, hey, I can start this. I can start chapter one, 40 hours or a month before it comes out. Oh, excuse me. A month before it comes out. And then I know that, hey, I will lead into chapter two perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. And by then I'm going to get it on sale. Because like I said, I'm super excited for the game. I just, I cannot be overwhelmed with excitement when I don't know where it's going to go. Fair. Um, and how it's going to do it. But what about you? What have you been playing this week? Um, so I've been in a similar boat of really busy, but also feeling bad various times. And of course, it was Valentine's Day. I hope everybody had a good Valentine's Day uh, or a Palentine's Day. If you didn't have uh, a direct love interest romantically, maybe you, you had a good uh, buddy that y'all got together and, and, and went out and, and enjoyed each other's company. You know, Valentine's Day does not have to be about a significant other in the romantic sense. I think that there's plenty of room to let people that just mean a lot to you get some benefits out of the day. But um, so with that, I did go and, and we had Friday night uh, out. Didn't have to have my kid. It was great. You know, all the, it all lined up. I really didn't expect it, but my mom ended up watching Kyrie for us and we got to go out and have a really good night. So, um, got, I've actually haven't Kelly played pizza. I haven't, oh, oh, that's, I got all there that. you go. I haven't played a game at all this weekend. I haven't played a game since Wednesday. Um, and all I've played this week prior to that was more of the kingdom hearts remind DLC, which I have now beaten, uh, got the, um, 
which is hard, man. Ooh, that's that because I you got. I've I seen be, you in Discord I, talking. About I beat it. the original version of the game on Proud, so my continue save file is Proud. It's not normal, so I'm fighting all these data boss things. And the main game was not hard at all on Proud, but these data battles are a lot harder. Um, so, it, but really good and super fun. And and uh, you know, similar to the Final Fantasy thing, I feel like some of the uh, in terms of the type of quantity, uh, the type of content that this is, which is hard battles that you do after you beat the main story. I do think some of those should have been in the base game because every other game has always had that. Um, uh, but, you know, either way, I really enjoyed that and it sets up so much interesting stuff at the end with its cutscene. I did watch the, both the ending cutscenes. <laughs> Is it not? I think dude, you're right. Dude, was it not chilling though? Like when it happened, I was like, I don't know why this is hitting me so hard, but what an what an amazing reuse of something uh, uh, that you would never expect. Yeah, I think you're right. Even it's, though the ending technically didn't confirm it, it almost feels like that's there's well, there's so much stuff going on that makes you think like, where do you go next? And you know what I love about it? Good on Tetsuya for this thing. Well, that's what I don't get. Where are we going to go from this? This was supposed to be the end of the Dark Seeker saga. Yeah, but it's not about the Dark Seeker thing. Was all in in regards to Xehanort. So now that Xehanort's not here, I guess we so. presumably move forward to the Master of Masters and understanding the deeper under uh, everything that goes into the the lore in the world. But you know, without saying too much, it does make me wonder if uh, we are going to continue to actually play a Sora in the next game or not. Maybe we'll actually move over to... Um, it would be really interesting to allow Sora as a character to still be in the series, but he's no longer the main protagonist. Uh, I, I'm curious, because there's, there's some there's some interviews that Totsuya did uh, and where he talks about, like, at the beginning, he really loved Sora, and Sora was, like, uh, analogous to him as a boy and all these things. But as the story progressed and what he decided that what he wanted to do and whatnot, like, he kind of became disconnected. As, oh, as he's aged, he's become disconnected to Sora because Sora's, like, so pure and innocent, but, it's like, but nobody's really like that. So he's like, you know, ironically, I found myself, uh, that's what Totsuya was saying, ironically, he's found himself um, liking and being more... Um, open or at least more. Um, I'm trying to think of the word. I don't know why I can't think of it. Like you, you don't necessarily agree, but you understand uh, more related, I guess, to the to the villains in the series. Um, well, I wonder if so. Uh, it would be interesting if the move here is to move away from Sora, who is this pure light, and still be able to use him in the story for what you need in terms of the okay. Well, there's a, there's a lot of benefits that come from this this person of pure joy and light or whatever. But now we get to move over to a character that maybe has a little bit more depth. Maybe he has anger and things that go on that we can pull into the story that we don't normally get to see from Sora, which they did try and tap into in Kingdom Hearts three a little bit. Yeah, um, but you know, um, really interesting, and I I loved it. For the most part, I, I thought the DLC was worth the money. So, well, let's 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 see. Uh, say you play as um, oh, I can't. I don't know why I always forget his name. Uh, Noctis's twin. His twin or Yozora? Yozora. Okay. Um, just the the person who looks a lot like Noctis. Yeah. What if you play as uh, Yozora in Final Fantasy, or Final Fantasy Four, Kingdom Hearts Four, and then you end up kind of going down the darker path, and then the only person to bring you back is Sora, and that's the last boss battle. Bang, 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 bang. That'd Who be knows? Kind of cool. There's a lot of interesting stuff, but Kingdom Hearts as a series is doing a lot of interesting stuff. And I applaud them for capitalizing on the, I don't know how they did it, a series that's been going on this long, randomly tapping into a new audience, and Kingdom Hearts 3 is selling gangbusters, now, but they did, did it. Did Remod actually add any context, or no, I say even context, but any kind of revelations to the story other than that last cutscene, or was that pretty much the only story stuff in it? No, there's a lot of stuff in the end. Uh, okay. So what you do at the beginning of Remind is you play through the end of the game again. Uh, but you play through the end of the game with a lot of... So it's essentially like it is the end of the game, 
you do something that takes you back in time in a weird way to the ending of the game. To add Scala, I'm sure. Well, you do get to go around and actually explore it, which is awesome. That's yeah, yeah. Um, that's good because you couldn't do that in the first time. Right? But essentially, there's a lot of there's actually dude. The, when you first start the DLC, there's a ton of dialogue and a ton of stuff you start to kind of pick up on and understand and be like, okay, like it it, it answers some question, adds a lot of them, and then kind of makes you go. They clearly are not done with this franchise. How much? How much way. did uh did how much is this? Thirty. Thirty. I might actually pick this up. But either way, so you're, you, there's probably about replaying through the entire end of the game with a lot more content and a lot more context to what's going on. In a, Ooh, in a very so it's a different lot like way. Final Fantasy fourteen or fifteen's fixed chapter. <laughs> it's a little different, but yeah, I, I personally would have preferred to have this in the game. Yeah, um, that's what a lot of people said about the fixed stuff in fifteen. Yeah, that's you know that still kind of makes me mad that only that fix is in Royal. It's only in Royal. I just have to see what it is because I, I I don't want to look into it, but like literally somebody was saying that they we'll fixes, discuss it when you're done. Yeah, because yeah. I'm gonna fully look in to see what was the difference because apparently if something was linear now it's open and there's something else in there that's that wasn't there originally and then that only was in Royal. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned on um, Twitter, uh, I am playing. If you haven't been able to, I've been playing more DLC this year for games I've missed. So I asked, and uh, there was a very split way tie between the uh, the DLC for The Witcher Three, the Frozen Wilds DLC, and Bloodborne: The Old Hunters. You know what will so, be fun? What's that? We were just joking about having a one a month Patreon exclusive video game club where we play through something for the first time. Mm-hmm. I've never played through Old Hunters. Neither have I. And that was on the thing as one of the highest voted ones. So. Maybe, Maybe we it's do time start we that. take a trek into Bloodborne. You know what? If you are interested, it was kind of a joke, but also like a real discussion going on prior to recording. Uh, if you would be interested in, uh, in, in, and this is something we'd be doing for patrons, um, just to add some value to that and, and kind of, uh, you know, give them something back for supporting us. Thank you guys, really. For 100, 100, it's not been supporting us for 150 episodes through Patreon specifically, but many of you who are patrons are people who've been supporting us for close to 150 episodes. So thank you guys. But if you would like to see and, and participate in a Patreon wide, no matter what tier you're at, um, it's essentially going to be like a video game club, kind of like a book club, where we choose one game that none of us have ever played a month, like me and me and Saul, or one that we've played but haven't played in a long time. Play it, go through it, uh, and then sit down and kind of talk about our experience with it. Uh, and it's going to be a more pointed conversation about one thing individual and kind of looking at the game um, in, a, in a bunch of different ways uh, and, and talking about it. If you'd, if you'd like that and would like to be able to participate in that, and what we'd probably do is take some of the patron comments we got about the game and interject them in the episode, uh, then let us know if you'd be interested and we'd, we'd do that uh see about doing that but um yeah so i don't know which one i'm gonna start maybe we'll wait and see what you guys think but i'm gonna go ahead and go into the community's take question real quick of course last week we were talking about kickstarter uh and and crowdfunding in general and you know how people stood on the fence of uh we're, Different people sit on different sides of the fence based off of whether people who already have an established name should be able to use it or something else, uh, or if it should be reserved for literally kickstarting people. And I think there's a lot of good points made on both sides uh, to some extent. Uh, but I'm going to hear you guys. So our community state question this week was, what are your thoughts on Kickstarter being used for games? Uh, as we were talking about it specifically for games, have you ever backed a game? If so, did that help or hurt your opinion of crowdfunding? So over on Twitter, 
Uh, Mr. Sweet Jones, our buddy Ryan, has said, I've never backed anything, but I think even big pubs should experiment with it. It's a good way to gauge actual interest in a product that is potentially a huge investment. Like eHarmony, people aren't going to F around when they have skin in the game. Example, PlayStation could put up a Kickstarter for Tourist Trophy 2, Tourist Trophy being a little-known PS2 racer game made by the team over at Polyphony Digital, uh, the team behind Gran Turismo. Anyway, set the goal for the most of the cost. And if it gets there, great. If not, they have great insight into what it might actually sell if they decided to publish it. Um, and I think that that's a great idea, actually. Uh, there's been a couple of people throughout these responses that kind of said that there is a use for it on the bigger publisher side, but it needs to be in looking at franchises that otherwise, uh, or IP rather, that otherwise the people are sitting on and not utilizing. This is a way to look at breathing new life into those IPs in a way that you know would sell because you'd be able to gauge interest through something like this. That's actually a great idea. Um, do a couple more real quick um, over here. Um, there was one I really wanted to talk about um, that came through here, but I'm going to grab a couple and when we come across it, I'll see it. Uh, Vinny Jimmy over here. Uh, howdy. Uh, he says, Howdy. Uh, crowdfunding is a great way for indie games to gain some traction and get made. I do feel like there need to be better protections for backers as I have fallen victim of backing a game and the developers stop development and just run with the money, though their goal was met. Uh, and I do uh, definitely agree with that general sense. Yeah, uh, that's Saul a good seemed, point. Saul seems like he had something to say about that. Is there a, an no, exact? I'm just, I'm just pointing because I very I highly agree with that. Like there's there's not enough protections into place on on kickstarter for stuff like that i mean sure that there is ways that you can get your money back from kickstarter for stuff that falls through but you get scummy enough developers on there or people who just want to make edgy steam games that get all this money and then they put out a final product that really didn't use any of that money and stuff and it puts a bad name on things yeah you know i wouldn't be surprised if there's someone who already made a game and then just chose to show specific parts of it and say it was a game that they were starting to make and then made something get else. all the money and then just essentially sit on that game until some time has passed be like hey here's my final product that you got it's just you're somebody's right somebody's done that there's not enough of a i mean technically the 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 wonderful 101 remaster is not far from that uh, essentially what it's looking like from all that was going on here is that the game is already done it's since they're planning on releasing the game in march all it came down to was getting extra funding to be able to extend that remaster onto not only the switch but the ps4 and the pc didn't cliff Blaz uh, blazinski do that with the game like didn't he take money that people were supposed to be putting into lawbreakers and they made that terrible battle royale game that lasted like a week i don't know radical heights was the name of the game you're talking about yeah. uh, the, the the battle royale uh, i'm not sure that's actually a, a good question like i i swear i feel like that somebody's done that where they promised the thing and then they they brought something else out and they were like well what about this and he's like oh yeah yeah i got all that already and it wasn't the fine not it sure it wasn't finished uh let's see over here we have Mr. Constantly Kenny, one of our patrons. Thank you so much, man. Uh, he says, I've backed many game projects on Kickstarter. I do take a bit uh, of time to check out the campaign and the people running it before I back them, but I haven't been disappointed yet. I think crowdfunding uh, it can be good for gauging interest, big company or indie. Lots of old IP I want, uh, which goes back to what I was talking about, of using it as a tool to really look at 
old IP that people ask about often, but don't have a way other than just talking about it to show you that there's interest in it. Uh, you can kind of do the put your money where your mouth is thing. You know, Kickstart is good for that. It's set up to where either you meet your goal or you don't. If you put it up there and say, hey, here's my goal, here's what we have as a, a plan, and here's a really, really rough demo of what we could do with it. How interested are you? Let's look at it right now. Put your money where your mouth is or not. Um, with that, we could see the return of franchises that people love, like uh, Sly Cooper. We could see that come back around and see what people want out of it and if there's interest for another one. You could see it with even older IP, uh, something crazy like a P Motor Tune Grand Prix, which was another game made by Polyphony Digital uh, for the PS1 <laughs> that most people probably don't know about. Uh, but you, again, it just gives you a lot of options. It lets you kind of go through and, and say, hey, what are you interested in? Uh, and, and would this be one to do it? You know, Bethesda can look and say, hey, people have been talking about Fallout 3 Remastered for so long, and even though they're talking about it, we don't know if they'd buy it. Well, hey, here's our Kickstarter for Fallout 3 Remastered. Would you be doing that? That is a poorer example, because I think that's clearly a game that has an audience. Um, but nonetheless, it's it's a way to gauge interest in old IPs. You got anything to add to that one, Saul? No, you covered it pretty well. Uh, over on, actually, I'll throw one more in there. Mr. Blake has says, uh, it doesn't matter um, to me when companies do it. I don't think it's a negative thing, but I have also never backed any, so I'm not sure. And I think that's a, a really honest answer, just kind of looking at it from the standpoint of like, you know what, there's no way to specifically tell. So yeah, uh, over on Facebook, Mr. Josh Ayers, another one of our patrons. Thank you, sir. Hope you're doing well. He says, I don't think Kickstarter is bad or good for most. It seems to be a show of interest for other investors. Shinmu three, having a Kickstarter campaign, then being funded the remaining money by deep silver and Sony comes to mind. But then there are the recent game, uh, the recent platinum games examples of just a developer wanting to release a game and the publisher doesn't want to. So as long as you know what you're getting into, I don't see the harm. Uh, and one more over there from Mr. Derek Porter, another one of our patrons. Thank you, man. He says, first, I have never backed a game on Kickstarter. It's one of those things where you get what you pay for, and some, not all, Kickstarter projects tend to be pretty rough and not up to par with what I look for in a game. However, I can see it can be... I can see how it can be used by indie game creators to get their creativity realized. On the other hand, I don't like Kickstarter being used by more well-established creators or developers. As the name implies, crowdfunding websites should be a Kickstarter for those without the available resources at their disposal. Established creators should be able to bring in investors, publishers based on their work, and shouldn't have to use crowdfunding to do so. Uh, I've got to remember the name of the site, uh, Derek, uh, but there actually is. I want to say it's like... Uh, Barry or something like that. Give me a second. Um, I kind of agree with him though. With what he's saying is like a, a reputable, a reputable publisher slash brand. It, it would seem that going off their reputation that they would be able to get the funding they would want for a game. But also on the double edge of that is that not always uh, will they ever get the money for it. Sometimes they have a game idea that's so crazy that no studio wants to publish it and then therefore won't fund it and stuff like that. So there's been movies before where, where uh, people had a crazy idea movie and nobody wanted to fund it, so they funded it themselves. And it, it's not always successful, but it, it could just be the case. So uh, I was pretty close with it being Barry. It's, it's Fig. Uh, so Fig is actually a crowdfunding site that's a little different. Uh, and this, I think, is where it really exists in the best, the best of both worlds. Uh, so whereas Kickstarter, I do think, is probably better to allow people to just look at it and say, hey, um, this is for people who have nothing. Uh, on the side where you're talking about like what Saul was just saying as well, 
Just because you have a name in the industry does not mean that people are going to look at every single idea you have, even if a bunch of the fans you have would love the idea. It doesn't mean that it's a risk that these companies would be willing to take. Uh, and a great example of that is uh, Psychonauts. So Double Fine Productions, uh, of course, put out Psychonauts way back in the PS2 era. And people love the game. It was a, uh, a cult classic. Uh, it's something that kind of blew up more so after its release. Uh, and people really wanted to see another one. So what we ended up seeing was them come and go, well, you know what? For us to do that, we're going to need some money. But their way of doing it was different. They went to a site called Fig. And I, I, I could be wrong. I want to say maybe they were even somehow responsible with being one of the first games on the, pro- on the, on the site. But essentially the idea is that when you're backing the game, you're actually backing it as an investor and not as just someone who's pre-buying the product. So you, depending on the amount of money you put back, you put into it, it's also the amount of money you will get back. Uh, it's basis how much money you could get back off of it if it's a massive success. Yes. So it kind of exists in that middle ground of where you're talking about of if you have an idea but your normal investors and publishers do not entertain it, but you want to come to people and say, hey, you as an individual can actually become an investor for something that you would like to see made. This is a way to do it. I think this exists in a much different way. And for people who have slightly deeper pockets, there's more reason for them to, to do that. You know, if Kickstarter was your only option and you had a lot of money and you had pretty deep pockets and you go, well, you know, what? I really would love to see Psychonauts 2. I'm just going to go ahead and dump um $50,000 in backing on it just because I can. Well, the only thing you're still really getting is whatever the highest uh, Kickstarter reward is. Whereas on this, you go, you know what? I loved Psychonauts too. I really believe in this. I have $50,000 I could slap on it, and that's going to give me $50,000 worth of investment that I could see a return of. Right. Uh, and I love that. So go check out Fig. Uh, Psychonauts 2 did go on there by Double Fine. And the campaign, their goal was $3,300,000. They got $3,829,000. Uh, so 116% of their goal. Um, and I just think that's a great idea. I mean, clearly they got extra funding elsewhere. But it gave the people who were doing this have some money to come back into it. Um, and I'm actually curious. I'd have to look. But I'm I'm a little curious if there is an if there's a way that this is a little bit more structured because of it being considered an investment, you know, now that could that could be a thing too because the, maybe this it, helps with the with the pitfalls. But go ahead, sorry. In, well, investments get weird too with with being if they're if they're actually marketed as an investment or not because with those don't you have to pay taxes and stuff on those too? Uh, I don't know. So on this site over here, it actually says there are two different ways you can back this game, traditional crowdfunding rewards and investments. So you can choose to go about it more along the Kickstarter side if you want to, or you can actually choose to become an investor in it. So it, it looks like it's a competition for Kickstarter that just has the added benefit of giving you the ability to invest in the game, uh, which I think is cool. So personally, um, I, I think that that's probably close to what you're looking at. I'm going to do a couple more of these, and then we're going to get moving off. But thank you guys. Really appreciate you. Uh, over in our Discord, we got Mr. Atlas Unchained, another one of our patrons. Thank you so much. And we don't just bring the ones up of people that are patrons. It just happens to be that our patrons are really active and, and like to give us their input, and we appreciate it. Uh, he says, I've never personally backed anything on Kickstarter, but I see no problem with it. As a supporter, you are acknowledging the risk of putting money towards something that may well just be in the conceptual stage. There are bad examples like Mighty Number no. 9 and arguably Ukulele, but that's on the fault of developers. I see it as a valid way to fund a project. 
And I, I really, that's where I'm at as well. You can't look, you can't let the bag, the, the bad examples in any given thing uh, be the reason that you don't do things. I mean, is what it is. There's a lot of bad things that happen. Uh, there's people that wreck cars and can kill people on accident, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't necessarily get out there and drive. It's just part of it. There's a, a risk inherent in everything that you do. So, uh, with that said though, we appreciate you guys giving your feedback. Uh, and from here we are going to go into, uh, our episode, which is going to be a lot different. Uh, we're going to just going to be openly talking about things that are going on, but in an effort to try and at least not ramble or go like that, we do have a, a couple of list of things that we wanted to talk about. And one of those, don't, don't, don't discuss the top one. That's the one I want to talk to most about. Oh, really? Yeah. I was actually, I, w- I didn't know if you would be, yeah, but I'm the, most interested in your opinion on it for one reason, but we'll talk about it soon. That's the one. I, yeah. That's the one I want to talk about the most. So the first thing, the focal point of the episode, if you will. So the first thing is, is and you guys may have seen this, of course, if you follow us on Twitter, as I, uh, I mentioned it uh, as it was not something I was too happy about, but it is what it is. Uh, EA have announced that Ghost Games, the developer that's been behind Need for Speed for so long, uh, is going to be renamed into EA Gothenburg, uh, and they're shifting it into a support studio, which I think is a shame. There's a lot of developers that have been uh, shifted over into support studios despite making some really great games. Um, and with that, they're going to be sending the franchise back over to Criterion Games. Uh, so if you remember, Criterion was originally the team behind Burnout, uh, and the fa- the founders of it have actually left and gone on to do their own thing. Uh, so Criterion now is just uh, a namesake, really, um, which happens to a lot of studios. Doesn't mean that they're any better or worse, but... Um, Criterion was responsible for Need for Speed from about 2010-ish to 2013 when the game was still being made yearly. Um, and they were also a, uh, a helping developer on Ghost Games' first in, uh, Need for Speed game, which was Need for Speed Rivals, a PS3 uh, game. So with that in mind, um, there's a couple of reasons as to why they're saying these things are happening. So the, the first thing is, is that, like I said, they're getting renamed to EA Gothenburg. Uh, most of their creative team is going to be positioned uh, over and transferred into Criterion with some of the others being just moved within EA in general. And the reason that EA has chose to go with on this is that they've had an inability to attract the talent wanted to Gothenburg to work on the series, while Criterion being based in Guildford allows a more diverse group of people as one of UK's biggest game development hubs. So, you know, fancy speak for apparently people didn't want to move to Sweden, which is where... um, where Gothenburg is. Uh, but since there's already people at UK in, in Guildford, then you have, you're dealing with the fact of, or in England rather, but uh, you have a, a bigger group of people to go ahead and go with without having to attract them to move out to where you are. Um, I'm a bummed on this one, but I think Saul is a little probably different on this one for the main fact of Saul. Have you played any of the need for speed games? This, no, this generation? No. That's why it doesn't really doesn't really bother me or affect me any. So I don't really have an opinion on it or anything. So, I I know that some people loved those the later games made by Criterion. Some people hated them. So it kind of just is a catch twenty two. Mm-hmm. Well, and it kind of depends on where you were in the series. So like, it's not something that interests you as much anymore. But like, if you had to, what was your favorite Need for Speed game? Like Carbon. If, Carbon. Okay, that's actually mine as well uh, of the older style. And that was the last one I played actually. So when you're going through that. You're looking at carbon, and uh, there's a lot more in carbon, a, a lot more in common with carbon underground, underground two, and most wanted. Uh, there's a lot more in common with those games and the Need for Speed 2015, and definitely Heat. Um, 
and a lot less in common with those games, which is what a lot of people view as the golden age of Need for Speed and definitely was the golden age from a sales perspective, um, than what Criterion was doing. Criterion was all about, well, hey, it's just racing. It's a lot more like burnout. There's no car customization. All you do is you can change colors of your car by rolling through. It's essentially like they tried taking Criterion, uh, who, play, who made Burnout Paradise, which I, I think, did you play Burnout Paradise? Yeah. Okay. So Burnout Paradise, great game. That was the last 360 Burnout game, wasn't it? It was the last Burnout game in general. Yeah. <laughs> Sadly. Uh, well, but that was the one that got remastered too. Like it did. Uh, two years ago? A year ago? Yeah, something like that. Uh, but it, it did, and it was a great game, and it played to the strengths of what Burnout did by expanding it in a bigger way as well. But essentially what happened is they took Criterion away from Burnout and said, you know what, Need for Speed's already got a name on it. Why don't you just use it and let Criterion make essentially the same game but under the Need for Speed brand, which inherently makes a game that does this not feel like any of what people were really wanting out of Need for Speed. But it came at a time when Need for Speed was kind of needing to change because they kept having the same developer try to restrike the same lightning and it wasn't, ha- it wasn't happening. So EA Black Box closed down um, and instead they let Criterion go after it. But, you know, Criterion, re- they chose a really, really odd choice in my opinion they chose to let uh, criterion chose to reboot most wanted which is one of the most celebrated need for speed games and make it nothing like the original most wanted there's absolutely zero car customization uh it's it's a pretty game looks great it drives all right pretty well i mean you know when you're playing it it feels all right to control but it has pretty much nothing of what was of value to the Need for Speed Most Wanted game originally. And it just seems weird to me where I exist on this a little differently from you. Yeah. And I'm at least curious as to what you think about this. Um, why would you feel the need and urgency to create ghost games who originally were called EA Gothenburg, let them become their own studio that's solely responsible for Need for Speed because Criterion clearly was not getting it done why would you feel the need to take it from Criterion just to go about all your business here and give it directly back to the studio that at one point in time you thought couldn't do it? Yeah, it's a stupid. It's what I like to call an EA move. It just doesn't make <laughs> sense. Like I don't, I don't get why they did it. And, and you know, it, it could just be because you know there, there's a there's maybe they didn't spend enough money and they needed to make a whole new studio. I don't know. It's weird. Well, or, there's or a couple to, things. Not even to make a whole new studio, but to really fully employ a whole new studio. The, the problem I have with that thought process. Yeah. On the surface level is uh, it, it, it brought me back to the old Voss Far Cry 3 quote. Yeah. Do you know the definition of insanity? Yeah. Doing the same thing over and over again. That's and expecting also not a, different not a Voss quote. That's like a quote. Oh, no, no. Of course it is. Of course it is. But in gaming, a lot of people first came across it yeah. because of Voss. Um, so, but it, it, with that being said, it, on the service level, that's what it sounds like. So you took it away from a developer to create a new developer to home it, and now you're just giving it back. So under that logic, it, it's a joke, but it's like, so are we going to see Ghost Games come back and get the franchise seven years from now since Ghost had it for about seven years? Um, but uh, the bigger thing I actually think may be going on here um, and to their credit, when Criterion had it, the series was still being forced to be made every year. Uh, when Ghost got given it, they got given the ability to make it every two years, which I do think had a huge impact on the, the game's quality. Right. Uh, so there's that. I would assume that going back to Criterion, at least this time, the studio would be given two years in between each release, which would I 
realistically probably be three years from making the game uh, as they split up teams. But the other side of that is we just saw, excuse me, we just saw Europe go through Brexit. And even though we're, of course, on this side of, uh, of, the, of the pond, we're in the U.S., uh, and, and it means a lot less to me, Brexit does, because it, it, it doesn't affect me, so it's not something I've had enough uh, time or need uh, to put to look into, uh, though the people who are clearly negatively affected by it, I'm, I'm, you know, I feel for you, uh, but I'm curious if this is actually in part due to Brexit, because Gothenburg is in Sweden, and Sweden is... As far as I understand, please correct me if I'm wrong. I know we have a lot of, uh, of uh, UK listeners, uh, European listeners. As far as I can tell, I think Sweden is no longer going to be, or sorry, the UK is no longer going to be part of the European nation altogether. Mm-hmm. I'm butchering the exact thing of it, but Sweden is going to be different. So I wonder if this is a necessary move as far as EA is concerned because of the stuff that's going around Brexit and, and its impact on the economy. Uh which would mean that what they're talking about with uh, not being able to attract people there very well might be like a, a half truth. Yeah, like it, it's a truth that doesn't really say why the reason actually was. Um, I could see that. I don't know. I just thought it was interesting. But you know, the, the biggest thing I think that's a, a, a shame here is that with this going on and kind of shrinking them down to a support studio, when I think they actually have made a. Two very, very good games. I think Need for Speed 2015 and Need for Speed Heat uh, are two examples of the of a series really coming back around. And at least for me personally, bringing my interest back to a series that had long died. Uh, and it long died because of Criterion. I don't think that Criterion were doing what Need for Speed needed when Need for Speed was in its super um, experimental stage late uh, throughout the ps3 gen as a whole really that's when they did like you know you had need for speed carbon which was like a cross-gen game right and then you had need for speed shift and shift 2 which are like hardcore racing games then you had need for speed run which was like trying to make it an action movie where you could get out and control the character free of the car which was like a really weird move then you had them try and come back to the carbon thing with no games done that right though like uh, no racing game has done that to my to to my knowledge. Somebody let me know if I'm wrong. I know Ryan would be one of the first. But is there a good racing game where you actually get out of your car and explore? I don't think so. And I think it because it goes directly against what a racing game is intended to be. Well, I mean, well, I mean, kind of. Uh, look, I mean, at you t- can bring Tony Hawk Underground. You get off your skateboard and move around and stuff. But the game's still ten out of ten. But it's in the aid of skateboarding. It is, but yeah. Like, like but, skate is too. Like you can get off your board and run around and skate, but, but it's to the aid of skate. And I guess that's my point in a way is like, and it's kind of what the, the Fast and the Furious movies have become. Like it's, it's, you, you separate it in that way. It almost becomes a different genre. It's no longer racing, it's action. Yeah. And that's kind of like my big issue with that is it would almost be as if BioWare brought back every single original person on the Mass Effect games and they made three new Mass Effects that were amazing. A brand new trilogy. And they were harkened back. And then they decided, oh, let's just bring back the team for Andromeda. Like, they, they had something so good, why ruin it? And, I mean, that's controversial because people like Criterion versions. People like, Oh, yeah. People there like there the are EA definitely versions. people that like them. And there's people that really don't think that Ghost have done a good job. But it's, it's just weird. And, and it's almost just, to me, it's, it, it doesn't make any sense. And, and I don't see why they're doing it this way. And I, I can't, like, you maybe with the whole Brexit thing, maybe, possibly, 
something like that's going on with them. I don't know. Well, maybe it's it's in an effort to shrink the studio to where the size will make sense from a support studio thing. But in terms of having a full studio that's over a really long running big franchise like Need for Speed, having the having that workforce bolstered up and that's inside the UK may be the better way to go about it. I don't know. It's it really it's something that I guess for real like it's harder to tell. We won't be able to put a full judgment on it until. We see the next Criterion game. I really think, and and the bigger reason for that that I find so weird is it, that's why I think there's something fishy going on outside of that. Because if you're moving the majority of the creative team from Ghost Games over to Criterion, that means the people who were in charge of the the main reason of how the last games focused and worked, the create the creative people who determined yeah. like, hey, this is what we want to do. They're gone. No, they're going to Criterion. Well, I mean, yeah, but, but where are the ones at Criterion going? They're gone. I don't, oh, I don't know about Criterion. So, yeah, if you love the Criterion ones, it may actually not be what you wanted with it going back to yeah, Criterion. Like, it may be Criterion in name only, but a racing game in Ghost completely, at least as far as um, the main functions of the game style is. Now, the one thing that may happen is if, if any of the developers are still there. Well, they said it's Need for Speed. Well, no, I'm saying, like, what if this ends up not even being for Need for Speed? Like, watch the next Criterion Racing game not be called Need for Speed. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, the The reason I bring that up is that Need for Speed, and I think one of the only reasons that EA still actually puts a lot of stock in it, is it's the oldest racing franchise um, around, if I'm not mistaken. It's, it's like one of the longest-running franchises ever. I think, I think Gran Turismo outdates it, doesn't it? I don't think so. I thought Gran Turismo 1 came out like two years on PS1 before Need Grand for Speed Tri- did. <clears throat> Sorry, Gran Turismo 1 came out in 97. Yeah, I think didn't Need for Speed come out in 99 or even 98? I think it was before that. 94. What? On yeah. what system? We will find that out. <laughs> uh, on Super Nintendo? Uh, on 3DO and Microsoft DOS Windows. That PlayStation and Sega Saturn. Dang, I did not know that the series is that. And actually, old. you know what? I'm going to bring up Ridge Racer. Anyway, uh, they talked. Ridge Racer is probably from that same. They've that talked same about it. So Ridge era. Racer first released in '93. It's one of the only other ones, but Ridge Racer has also not been active. Mm-mm. So when you look at it in that sense, Need for Speed has always been active since its inception, and I think there's a lot of pride in that. Uh, so I do think it's a big reason for them to keep the keep it going. Uh, when you're EA and you have some. Um, visual problems in terms of or some uh, optics problems where people are looking at you in a lot of weird ways. I think having a franchise that's been long running and active that people love in various degrees and various ways is probably a smart thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's like a constant, you know, when every other franchise goes between a lot of different things it's like, well, Hey, look, you know, we still got need for speed. That thing that you loved back when in 94, when you were first going. So I don't know. It's it's an interesting development there, but we will see how that ends up working out. Uh, the next thing, you guys may remember uh, back in E3 when we even did our watch along for it, Square Enix teased a game called Outriders. Didn't bring much up or show much. It was a really, really light tease. But now... Uh, we've been given a full reveal of the game. Uh, it's going to be a cover story for, uh, or it is a cover story, I should say, for Game Informer. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff going on for there. Um, but it's showcased as a cross-gen, drop-in, drop-out co-op shooter set in a dark sci-fi world. 
and I'm going to kind of do the spiel and then we'll talk about it. The game aims for a strong narrative found in linear shooters with the added fun of a AAA co-op shooter experience with different classes for up to three friends to play together while insisting that they will not be a games as a service title. No plans for loot boxes or the like with the company stating, quote, players will be getting a complete experience out of the box, end quote. And you can go check out the trailer and see the game in action. Um, there is actual gameplay in there. Uh, so Saul, did you watch the trailer? What's up? I did. I thought it looked so mediocre and cliche that I actually put that as the thumbnail. And I put Anthem 2 in our thumbnail text. And people are going to think that that's Anthem 2. Point oh. It you think so? It looks that cliche. Yes. I, I, I will say this. I could, there's nothing about it that looked in, interesting to me. Like uh, It just looks like your run-of-the-mill co-op horde first-person shooter, third-person shooter. It's just weird. Like it, it all looked samey. As a matter of fact, I almost thought that was Gears of War too. Like, <laughs> like, like there's there's a specific shot in this trailer where the girl's walking and you, and it's the camera's following by her side, mm-hmm. and her armor even looks reminiscent of of uh, Gears Four. So, do you know who's making this? Yeah, it's um. If you do, you know what games they've made? Yeah, and I can't think of what the, what it, what it is now. Okay, so they made Bulletstorm. Yeah. Which is Who a, is that? Uh, the, the studio is called People Can Fly. Okay. So with that, uh, they, they, of course, are experienced on Unreal Engine. So a couple things going on here. It's, it's, an, Unreal, it's an Unreal Engine game. Yeah, I say it's definitely Unreal Engine. You can tell that from, the, from the, the way the game looks. Yeah, it being cross-gen, I think, is probably... I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's good to say that because it means that people know that they'll be able to get to play it. Uh, but, of course, it doesn't necessarily look super next-gen in, in value. Though, I, I will say this. I think the game looks a lot like, to me, the problem I have with Gears of War that I mentioned on this recently. I actually think the game looks all right, mildly fun. It just doesn't look like anything. It just looks. It just looks like it's, it's, it, 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 that. The problem I have with it is essentially, like I said, Gears of War just kind of feels bland. Uh, when I played Gears of War Five, it's like, yeah, it's a long established thing, but it has almost no style of its own. It just looks like a bunch of other games. Also, it's ironic because the IGN game. Um Outriders trailer is like gameplay and there's like maybe less than a second of gameplay in that actual trailer. Mm-hmm. This one. Um, let me find a, let me see if I could find the shot so I can actually give people a time frame. but it, it's literally like it just, to me, it looks so samey. Yeah. I've actually been the guy that I was walking next to, uh, not the woman, but, um, that, nope, that's not what I was thinking of. Uh, but yeah, it just looks, it looks like a combination of like so many, so many cliche games right there. It is at the, let me see if I can pause it at that right time. Right, uh, it's just a split second of when it happens. But it looks like Gears of War. That even looks like Gears of War at 204. <laughs> but right there, tell me at 205, that does not look just like Gears of War. Exact I can see carbon it. copy yeah, right I can see there. It. Um, and it's the guy, it's the guy with the beard. And I'm not saying the game's going to be bad. I'm not, gonna, I'm not saying anything like that. I'm not trying to hate on the game. But I'm just telling you what I feel about it. It just looks, and that guy right there looks like a resistance enemy ripoff. Look at that. Does that not look like the resistance guys with the big old things on their back? Yeah, it does kind of. If it looks a little more alien, I'd agree with you. But yeah. it's still, I mean, it actually kind of makes me think of a Mad Max character. But Maybe look, so either with way, how humanoid here, he is. here's the thing on this. I hope the game is good. But I mean, there's, I do too. there's something that's more interesting about this to me. The bigger thing I want to see is how the story plays out in this because there are games that don't have very interesting art style or looking, but they actually end up being a really fun game. And a good example of that is a game that, by all means, is 
underwhelming looking when you go to look at it, and that was um, the remnant uh, from the ashes. But it was also would, a double A game. I would argue though, two things. One, it is a double A game. Two, it is borderline games as a service, where this game claims it's not. Mm, that's so, true. They've constantly added stuff. Yeah, uh, and it exists in a way that's a little different. It's it hinges on the fact of, hey, what if we made a kind of dark, uh, dark soul style game? Also, but also as a shooter and game. Remnant has its own cool style to it. This to me doesn't feel like this has personality at all. And well, that's yeah, I, I, from reception. a triple A perspective, I think that Remnant does have a style, but it's kind of muddied up by the fact that it didn't have a lot of budget. Yeah. Reasonably, I mean, it's it's okay. I, I still enjoy the game, and it exists in that window of games that don't look phenomenal, but are actually really fun. It doesn't really matter what they look like, or if it's it looks like it's something that you can't necessarily tell if you'd enjoy it from a trailer enough. And I feel the same way about this. Yeah. But the bigger thing that I kind of noticed from this is, do you notice that most of the next gen games that we've seen stuff from definitely actual gameplay of some sort or something that's supposed to be representative of actual gameplay have almost all been these co-op looter shooters doing all these things with classes godfall a lot like this i almost said greedfall yeah godfall uh, looks but godfall, and, uh, godfall looks more stylistic yeah i'll say the, godfall looks so more so much more unique than this game does mm-hmm. but the thing about it is and this is kind of what i'm worried about they are choosing really easy to optimize games game types to show us early I know, and it's we really haven't weird. gotten a single AAA style story that can really show off what we may see. Well, that we've actually seen because, like, you, you can well, bring up yeah, you yet. can you can bring up Hellblade too, but all we saw was a pre rendered cutscene. Yeah, now they, that they, doesn't really it's not indicative of anything. They said it's all supposed to be in engine, so it's kind of weird with that. Like, pre rendered can be can misconstrued in a lot of ways. It could be real. It couldn't be real. It's an engine, which also could be misconstrued in a million ways. Um, well, in-engine means that it was made in the engine, but that doesn't mean it wasn't pre-rendered from that engine. Yeah. Uh, and so, that becomes the thing. It's like, well, what can you do in real time versus what you can do in rendering? Yeah. Um, Everything we've seen, though, has been... Sh- like, I guess Halo 6 technically was is shown, but Halo Infinite, again, and that's a similar thing. It's focusing on a lot of multiplayer but that's not stuff. A, but, but remember, though, that's not an Xbox Series X game. Oh, it's not. So... Well, it is, and that's the only way they've well, shown it, but it's also going to be on the other consoles. That's the best way to kind of word it. Yeah. It's like they're showing it as a Series X game, but we they're haven't not gotten actually... a definitive exclusive, new-gen exclusive reveal yet. Um, Godfall is next-gen. Next gen well, only. you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about not in the, in the sake of what... The, uh, so, of the first-party exclusive, or, no, exclusive no, or what? No, no, uh, and the difference of genre of what we've seen. Yes. Third-person okay. quick shooters. Like, we haven't not seen anything that's capable of showing it off, which is kind of scary because I'm sure you read that article that uh, our partner website, Final Weapon X, uh, put out. But uh, many other websites have been reporting on it this week, too. And I actually... I read it. On, I read it on Final Weapon, and I read it again through Reddit uh, on Gamespot. But um, that some of the stuff for the PS5 is costly to them, and we're going to get into that later. But uh, yeah. also, coronavirus may be stopping and and delaying production on a lot of this. Yeah, it's hard to tell. So we'll get into that here in a little bit, though, yeah. because I'm actually going to go pee real quick. Oh, okay. I'm too scared to hold it in after like three weeks ago. Oh man, trust me, as somebody who's had kidney stones and my kidneys actually been hurting randomly throughout this, I'm going through some other stuff. Uh, I'm constantly scared and I'm drinking tea, which is even a worse thing. Drinking a diuretic when you have to, when you're needing to sit down and record something that's going to make you go pee. Who knows? Yeah, it is what it is. Hope everybody's doing well though. Pure leaf. If you would like to sponsor us, (laughs) I would gladly take it. Um, anyway, um, 
while Saul's out, I mean, my big thing on this is it's interesting to me the China, the kind of genres that are showing as the uh, primary. It, it's almost like um, they had to go through and say that this is not a games as a service because otherwise that's how it would be construed because it looks like a lot of the stuff we're seeing going into the next gen at least the first things that people are willing to put out there are things that could be easily looked at like, okay, games as a service, something that people will be able to play over a long time. We saw some of that this gen with like, of course, Warframe was a really early game. Uh, there's been plenty of games that were really early releases that have stuck around that uh, are more or less um, that style, the, the, the games as a service style, uh, which I think MMO kind of folds into as well. Destiny, of course, uh, is still going in, in a way. It's not the original title, but it's still Destiny. Um, so, yeah, I think there's something to that. It's just I don't know if it's more indicative of what the industry thinks is a really good move right now or just what's indicative of what people are uh, – what's far enough along that people are willing to show because it's a simpler thing to show. Uh, and I don't necessarily mean that to the to – the, you know, downside of any of these things. I hope all these games are good. Um, but we'll see. It's, it's kind of hard to tell. Uh, but – while Saul is in the bathroom, we'll go ahead and start talking about the next thing, which ironically actually is about Warframe. Uh, so Warframe fans can go check out. This is something that Saul doesn't really have to worry about. It's just Tenocon is going on uh, this year again. It's the annual uh, show for Digital Extremes, the developer behind Warframe. Um, it's going to take place on July 11th, so you guys can go, and if you have any interest in that, you can either just stream and, and watch it as it's going on as they do their uh, showcase, which shows their plans for what they intend to add to Warframe or change. Uh, or you can actually go and see these things yourselves and actually get your hands-on uh, experience with some of the upcoming changes, as well as just interact with other people in the, the community. So, yeah, that's... a. Uh, if you enjoy Warframe, it's a game I uh, constantly talk about getting back into, and I just have not had the time to do so. Uh, as someone who's been trying to, uh, I, busy with so many other things and talking about starting to play Red Dead Online, I played it once, <laughs> I haven't played it again. So um, it's it's hard for me to apparently commit to things like that. Maybe that's why these types of games are so hard for me to jump back into. Um, but that is okay. I hope Saul is okay. He's been gone for longer than I would have anticipated, but that's, uh, that is what it is. Uh, let's see. Is there anything else on here I can throw out? Uh, oh, annual dice awards happened this past week. So untitled goose game, uh, of course got game of the year, but you can go check out all the other different uh, awards and the other games that were recognized, uh, with those awards. If you want to go check them out, they're out there. Saul, before I get too moved on, did you want to add anything into the, uh, going back to that outriders thing of, <clears throat> the the last thing I kind of phrase it on is is the Outriders and Godfall and like Halo and all these things that we're seeing is this indicative of where the industry is and what they think is the most successful coming off of things like uh, Fortnite and whatnot and what I brought up is for Outriders to actually go out of their way to specify that they're not a games as a service it's almost like they knew they had to do that because without that little tidbit people would immediately think they were a games as a service. But is, is that indicative of the, in the industry where we're at right now or just indicative of what's far enough along that people are willing to show? I don't think it's indicative of that. I think it is indicative of the fact that people know that the jump between this console gen and next console gen is going to be kind of slight in terms of fidelity of graphics and visuals and stuff. And I think that they are just trying to show us some of the early stuff in the works that we all know is going to be cross-gen. So our hopes don't get super high on what we may get because it may be downgraded in the future 
or it just might not be what people have in mind for those that aren't expecting something um, more realistic in a way. And I say that not meaning like not trying to be sound pretentious or anything, but I do think that what we're going to see, like what we saw with Hellblade, for an example, the game looked fantastic, but we don't know if that's how the game's really going to look or not. And once again, it is all an engine, but there's tricky words there. I don't know if people are ready to show those kinds of games yet. That's not the the easy to make or easy to capitalize games that say, okay, Godfall. Godfall looks fantastic, but it also looks a little clunky. Have you have you watched the gameplay of that? Yeah. It looks a little clunky, but it looks great. <clears throat> but also it doesn't look like what I know people are envisioning as a next gen game. I think the bigger reason for me, I, 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 before I answer my, even say anything, the reason I, I guess would say is if you think that people aren't ready to show that, why? Is it the games aren't far enough along or is it that they're not the at the stage? The tech is not far enough along. Mm, okay. I'm going to disagree with you on that one. You, you think so? So the, the, what I get at is I think part of what's going on here is a lot of these games are going to be cross-gen. Godfall not, but it's also an exclusive from a small new developer. Yeah. Uh, so I think that that's part of why that gets a little bit of a different look, mm-hmm. uh, though it is still one of the first next gen only not even cross gen i think that's part of why it's exclusively next gen right is sony trying to have uh something that's hey here's something you can only do on ps5 and here's what you see yeah and, um, and so far we're one for one with that xbox showed hellblade we got that which hellblade's still not indicative of weirdly sure. microsoft being yeah. not competitive um but where i think it is i don't think it's that the tech's not far enough along i think what it is is that these things are things that you can easily show that uh for the most part besides godfall um which you know, Godfall was like Sony's little ace in the hole for the for the Game Awards, and then they probably did not realize that Microsoft was going to show the whole console, and that was supposed to be their ace in the hole. Yeah, so they there's probably an expectation that hey, each develop each manufacturer is going to have one big announcement mm-hmm. at least during the Game Awards, and I think Sony's just didn't realize that which one it was going. You know. Probably, who knows? They may have had some little bit of information that said that they might be doing that. Um, but I think that's why we saw that, and because we managed to see a couple of other things that were aimed at next-gen from Microsoft, like we saw Hellblade, of course, during the Game Awards. But then we also saw, uh, back in E3, we saw Microsoft show off Halo Infinite, which was supposed to be running on One X. So I think it was just in an attempt to try and catch up a little bit and be like, well, hey, here's at least one game. But what I actually think it is on both sides, to at least some extent, but more so on Sony's side, uh, as to why we've yet to see as many things, and maybe from other third-party publishers, uh, but definitely from the the Sony realm, is that they want to show those things alongside a bigger dump of information. I think what it comes down to is that they don't want to show it just as an individual game and say, hey, just so you know, this is a PS5 game. I think they want to do the inverse. I think they want to show you a little bit more about PS5, tell you a little bit more about PS5, and then go, by the way, what we just talked about, this is what they can do, and not the inverse. Even though I think the inverse may still work, I just think it's... It, Sony's never done the opposite. Right. And I'm talking merely from third parties. Yeah. Too. Whereas I, th- I think the reason that third parties are a little slower, I think Square's looking at this. This may be a AAA game, but it's from a smaller studio. And this is some, and this is something they can look at and go, hey, you know what? I, I, I applaud them for the attempt at what this is. Definitely from a studio, I mean, from a publisher like Square Enix. This is getting back to seeing Square Enix do more specifically from their uh, non-Japanese side in a very different way. We've seen Tomb Raider keep going, but almost everything else is been different so yeah uh, it's it's been more japanese focused and varied and and, and but this is still something um but, but it's weird we're seeing the same types of games in a way yeah and, and but for third, me, third parties i think a lot of it comes down to so many of them do yearly titles that it's like 
we know, okay, like Ubisoft can't show much right now because all their games got delayed because they were running into the problem of all their games being too similar for people. So what do they have to do? They have to go back and be like, we got to change some things. we got to be a little bit more broad strokes with these things. And we have to make sure these games are the best they can be. So we know what's coming up from Ubisoft. We know that we're getting uh, Gods and Monsters or whatever that game is. It's from the uh, Odyssey team. We know we're getting a new Watch Dogs. And we know we're getting, uh, what was that last game? And it goes to show you, I don't pay as much attention, so I don't worry about it. Uh, but then EA, we know that EA, we're going to get our normal things. We're going to get uh, whatever yearly releases they have, sports Madden, games and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, and then Activision, as far as they're concerned, they know that we're going to get a Call of Duty game. So when you look at that, I think it's just that why show all these things for next gen when the bigger market you're going to have is the current gen? Yeah, but also at the same time, uh, if that's the case, we still haven't seen Elden Ring. And we don't know yeah. at this point. I would assume that is a current gen game. We don't know now. It's going so long that unless we get something in the next couple of months, I could see that being a summer release. Who's but we the don't publisher? Um, Bandai Namco, shouldn't it be? Well, I mean, just because it's from doesn't mean that. I mean, obviously, well, that's who Activision I'm did. Um, yeah, Activision did Sekiro, but I would, I, I, I thought it, I remember it being Bandai Namco. I think it is. I, I do think you're right. I'm just, I'm, I am curious. I want to go double check that. But um. Bandai Namco. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So like, it's weird that we're not seeing this kind of the, these kind of first gen games, and I think that it's done by design. I think that think of it this way: what was one of the first PS4 games we saw that was a third party, second party game? That was a third party, so, or second party, or second party game. Down by Flame. Look at how that game looked at launch. At yeah. It did well, not, what do you mean by C? Like release? No, no, I'm talking or about like, like out of out of all of the first third party games for PS4. When after the PS4 was announced, what did we start seeing? We start we saw a couple more Nat trailers that were variations. We saw a couple Call of Duty trailers of Call of Duty Ghosts. Mm-hmm. But then what was the one single uh, player game we saw was Bound by Flame. That was one I mean, of the, I remember it, but I don't remember it being that big of a. I mean, it wasn't thing. that big know. of a deal, but it was one of the first is what I'm saying. Hold on. I, now you got me curious. Uh, I wonder when the reveal trailer came out. I want to say it was in... 14. The system was already out by then. The reveal trailer for that game came out by then? Yeah, the reveal the reveal trailer was February 13th, 2014. The system had already been out for, for three two months. months. Or yeah, three months, technically. So, I, I, and I'm wrong. I'm not, it, it's See, hard remember, to remember that. I remember line. Bound by Flame, though, being one of the first ones that we saw for some reason. Maybe it's, I'm getting it mixed up with something else, but I remember seeing maybe. Well, it was, you also didn't get a PS4 at launch. So you're, you're, you're a little more. Yeah, but I got an Xbox at launch or in launch window. Yeah. So, it, so I, I, I was attentive of what was coming out. Hmm, I don't know. No, actually, I did not get an Xbox at launch window. You didn't get either of them at launch. No, no I got an Xbox One after I got it. Yeah, after I got the PS4. Because at that point, when I had the PS4, all I had was my uh, PS3. Either way, um, we'll see what that ends up being. I, I don't really. I, it's hard to tell what the goal is for for I, I this just, in particular. I think, I think it's trying to be a hold your cards close to your chest kind of thing. That's what I, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking <laughs> that it is a show these games that are not low effort to make or anything like that, but that, that they are not going to be on par with what we will see from the first-party developers and even second-party developers. I think on the third-party side, it's going to be more of, we have to look and see if they're as hesitant to move their games to be exclusively next-gen uh, like they did. So like early this gen, it was more of like a thing of like when they were making games before the system came out, it was like, worst-case scenario, we're making them cross-gen. 
I want to see how many more, how quickly it takes for third party publishers to go exclusively next gen. Not Bound by Flame. Thief was what I was thinking of. Yes. Okay. Thief was one okay, of the first games. Yeah. I, I was sitting there thinking, I'm like, wait a second. Bound by Flame was not. And it cross, was a cross gen. Was, was, was Bound by Flame cross gen? I think that game was so, so bad that like I didn't pay any attention to it. I, I watched Seth play it and I was like, no, I'm not. No. Yeah. Uh, but no, hold. Thief was and it was a cross gen game. That's what and I we remember. We did see it. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and, you know, it's just one of those cases of like, hey, they're going to show us these games. You're not going to get the graphic fidelity you think you're going to get going into next gen with these game reveals and they're playing it safe because of that because think about it think at launch what cross gen games looked next gen this past gen none of them them. yeah the only games that looked next gen were exclusives yeah and they were first party exclusives for the most part so it's just one of those things of like they are keeping the cards close to their chest and they're doing it with these games that are I don't want to say easy to manufacture but they're they're or even low effort because that still sounds pretentious but they are just like shooter like third person shooter games with probably you know the visuals are cliche but yet they're kind of original like and I'm not trying to put the game down I don't know how the game plays it may play amazingly it may be a great game to pick up but it's it's nothing nothing new or at least from what we've seen it's hard to tell it is what's nothing new even compared to to this gen like you can go find a game that looks like that on Steam or on Xbox or on like right then like I said I compared it to like two or three different games in, in one go, because it does have hints of like what looks to be like God of War, kind of some resistance stuff thrown in there with the guy's back armor, kind of some stuff with uh, Anthem. It, 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 it's nothing, you know, you, you brought up um, Ashes. I think Ashes looks unique for or what remnant, it is. But yeah. Or Remnant from the Ashes, yeah. Yep. But it looks unique for what it is. That game did not look unique to me. Fair enough. Um, so here's an interesting one. Despite opting out of E3 again this year and the seemingly hiatus nature of PSX, PlayStation will be active at least at one fan event this year with the announcement of their booth at PAX East. The event kicks off at 10 a.m. EST on February 27th, and the attendees will be able to play Final Fantasy VII Remake, The Last of Us Part II, the recently released streams, as well as other upcoming titles like Neo 2 or Iron Man VR, and a bunch of other games as well. Um, I'm at least glad to see them doing this, because I don't know if you remember earlier in the year when they said um, that they weren't doing E3, and it was kind of like, what are they going to do? I remember saying, like, their thing needs to be, regardless of if it's PSX or not, I have a feeling that they're going to go and start being more active at fan conventions. And it looks like I was right. It doesn't mean that this is going to happen more often. It'd be cool to see if they're going to be at every single PAX. Because um, there's, what, three PAX a year, I think? Or four? I'm trying, because there's PAX East and PAX West. And then I, I, don't, I think there's PAX South. I don't know if there's a PAX North. I don't, there's not a PAX North, I don't think. So there's three, Which I guess. weird. Um, but with that... Is there even a PAX South? Yeah, the, the it's South? in Texas. Okay, that's the one. Okay, yeah. yeah. So my thing about this that's hard to completely tell how this is going to be, I said it a long time ago, I and we were talking about it on Twitter recently with the, the likes of Gideon and, uh, and, and Ryan, or at least I was in particular, uh, about PSX and E3 and all these different things. And um, people were lamenting the loss of Sony at PSX, but of course uh, now we're seeing even more things like Jeff Keighley is not going to be at, uh, 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 sorry, uh, the lack of Sony at E3, and now we know that Jeff Keighley will not be at E3, and there's some people saying that Nintendo won't be at E3, but they'll still have a direct. There's all sorts of stuff going on, but it's kind of been this lamenting the death of E3 thing. Now, my thing for a long time, and even when Sean first came out and said, you know, E3 is less of a viable venue for us than it once was. There used to be a time and a place for it, but it's lesser and lesser. And my, th- my thought at the time was, after going to two PSXs, when he had said that, 
I, I loved it because I was like, okay, this is what you do. You don't need E3, even though E3 is ironically turning into a fan event. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like, you don't need E3. You need to do these really personable fan events where you get your people together and even going to something like PAX and like letting people get hands-on with your games and, and showing these things. I think that this is a much better show. Uh, there's something about the level of community that it introduces that I think is a better sell for get, moving yourself forward. They happen more often to where you can be more engaged with your fans at probably a little bit less of a cost and with a lesser expectation because when you're going to these fan events, there's not an expectation that at every PAX you're going to have some monster bombshell uh, reveal. Yeah. So it kind of helps them and it lets them control the speed at which they do those things, which is one of the things they seem keen on doing. E3 puts an unnecessary pressure on showing something which can be incredibly fun for the people watching but it can also be incredibly daunting like we always talk about when you have to show something because people expect you to and then you go but i can't we can't put this game out for another three years so that's where i'm at on it i will say that i think that jeff is only dropping out because of for his own game oh because because he realizes that he can do even more with the game awards well i think that here i think or that, what? i think that he thinks that sony dropping out can be a potential cascading effect so that if he's like, I'll drop out too, then he'll think, okay, well, now this event's not going to be as big as the Game Awards if more people drop out. So maybe he's hoping it's a cascading effect so Game Awards becomes a more bigger event. Who knows? But it- that's the thing. And, and, and I love E3. Like, I, I'm one of the ones in the boat. Like, it, it don't, like... It, 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 it sucks that they're skipping out on E3. Jeff Keighley, not so much, because he didn't really do a whole lot besides host a couple things. Yeah. But, like, when, when venues start dropping out, it becomes... Or manufacturers or, or publishers. Yeah, even then. <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's just lame. Like Because it's it's not always about selling. Because people don't understand or maybe they don't realize that E3 was not a consumer event, really, up yeah. until like the past five years. Well, no, uh, past two years. Yeah, because um, it was press only for a, for the longest time. With and, a couple of extra passes that people would do giveaways for. But it wasn't something that was meant to be open to the normal public. Yes. And, um, and I think it's more fun to watch just for the the news and the game reveals we get. And that's that's slowly what the Game Awards is becoming. Now if they can get off that weird German time or whatever they're on and, and host it at a reasonable time. Uh, they got to shorten it. They actually started at a reasonable time this year and just went way too long yeah, with like, a bunch of stuff that felt unnecessary. That's what made me mad about the Oscars. The Oscars was like four and a half hours long for whatever reason. They were supposed to be on like a three hour time limit, I thought. I, I don't I, know. I swear, I swear it started at seven and it ended at like 11. I, I, I should say this. Okay, so like other fan events and maybe the Game Awards will get to where they actually do this and it'd be really cool uh, because to me, it's so, it's so weird how many Game Awards they give off screen. Or they don't even do anything about it. They're like, hey, while we were at commercial break, we gave away these four awards. It's like, why? This thing is called the Game Awards, and you're giving well, all the awards out separately. That's but, the dumb thing, too, is that like E3 wasn't ran by commercials. Yeah. Now, the, the big thing about that comes down to uh, most other fan events, you get to this benefit of like it's across multiple days, which is one of the biggest strengths I think E3 has. Instead of trying to cram a bunch of, uh, a bunch of reveals into a three-hour window with a bunch of commercials that also have to happen, instead, you get to go through this aspect of like, okay, well, here's Sony's little three-hour of stuff they want to show or want anywhere from one to three hours of stuff they want to show. Here's Microsoft's, and they're all broken up by uh, a decent amount of time. And it's over two to three days, if not a whole week like it normally has been. So... It's like the, the PAX has that too. PAX happens over a weekend. Like, you know, you get a couple of days where you can go have people go in for two or so, two or three days, yeah. go in and try these things out. And I do think that that's a lot better than this one day thing. Like, even PSX, when it was going, was a two day event. It was yeah. always about, hey, 
get time on the floor, play these games, do these things. And I do think that maybe you would feel differently if you'd gone to one, which also is going to maybe speak more to your point in a weird way. My point is, I think if you'd gone to one, uh, uh, one of these more fan focused events and, and been like, Oh, you're getting to put your hands on everything. You don't understand how much more special it feels and how much more you actually well, care about the things you're learning. about. I think, I think that in itself is a problem, but the flip side of that going towards your point, what I was going to say is most, the, the majority of the population will have not gone to a fan. Exactly. Event. Yeah. So you, and you, I don't, you need to find the way to yeah, bridge that. E3 was a fantastic way of doing exactly that, bridging that. It's something I didn't have to go to, yet it had excitement built within yeah. from the reveals. So it's just it's one of those things that, like, I don't think Sony should be looked at as a hero for skipping E3. I'm not looking at him as a hero, but I, I know, I know some people yeah. do though. I just think that, you know, it, I, I, it's perfectly fine to be at E3. I think it's a weird thing to look at him as a hero. As I mean, oh, I people, guess unless we're fighting like they're like anybody who had negative annotation on Twitter about that. People were like, no, you're an idiot. It cost them so much more money to do this, this, and this, and this. I'm like, well, it's meant to do that. It's, it's, it's almost as in a, as it's, it's a, it's literally a press really a press event. To me, I think it's moving the money, right? If you're not going to do E3 and you have reasons that you, that you view as valid enough, then what do you, what, where are you reinvesting that money that gets you in connection with the fans? As I've learned, that's with, the thing. Well, as, as I've learned with most major companies, you won't, you won't know. You won't ever oh, see it. Of course it. you won't know. Because we, people thought last year, oh, well, Sony's not going to E3. Surely there'll be PSX. No. Nope. So. And I think that was a really bad move. Oh, yeah. Uh, but there's nothing At I least. can do to, to change that. Um, so nope. that's something we're going to have to wait and see if it ever comes back around. We and can, now that Sean's can. gone, it really makes me wonder if we're ever going to see it again. Uh, he, I, was, he was one of the headers for uh, PSX, wasn't he? Yeah, and I think it would be a really... Uh, I think that something like PSX, it needs to be something that people are pushing for that have higher up power. It's easy for a, customer, a company to be like, well, people are buying our products anyway. Why do we need to go out and have this fan event? Well, that's the exact reason. These are the fans that bought all your stuff and are giving you all the success and money that you're seeing because of this uh, as a result of the success. I don't think that it's crazy to say, hey, you know what? What if we had a PlayStation strictly focused event that we spearheaded and helmed and let people come into and experience? I think it'd be really smart. And actually, here's my crazy thing. And to an extent, we've seen it, if I'm not mistaken, in the, uh, in the XO uh, event, kind of like that. What is like, the XO uh, XO 19, which was Xbox's thing. A global celebration of all things Xbox. Watch the special Inside Xbox episode on demand and see everything we announced uh, from XO 19 in London. So... I think XO19 is closer to Xbox's answer to what PSX was. But my real thought after PSX came out and definitely after I went to my first one was, oh my God, everyone should be doing this. Yeah, Nintendo should have a Nintendo experience or whatever they'd want to call it. Xbox should have a fan-focused event that is a couple of days that lets people who really love that brand go out and experience a bunch of different things. And... It brings back so much of the stuff that E3 had started to shell off. It brings back the appreciation for indies. There's indie booths that you can go around and see. And E3 is trying, I think, to pick up on that. Uh, and maybe it's too late with people dropping out. E3's move towards being consumer-friendly, I think, uh, are open to the public, I think was probably in an effort to try and capitalize on that, let people come. There's something that's so much more kinetic and, and like it really pulls on you. To see a game uh, uh, announced at a show... And then immediately go, hey, you know, they just showed Godfall uh, during this thing. Now I'm a, I can go play a really rough version of Godfall. And it kind of gives you more appreciation. Where you're like, okay, I really see where it's at. And you can talk to the devs and they'll kind of give you a little bit more of an idea of what's going on and why they're doing things. 
it just has a much more structured and uh, a much more, I shouldn't even say structured, a much more homely, natural feel of like people going around who just love a hobby and getting to experience it and talk to the people who are, who are responsible for that hobby existing in the first place. Yeah. And it seems like less and less we're seeing people or companies give back, which is why. I, Thankfully, PAX exists. Yeah. It's a completely separate entity, but you know, either way. Uh, so a couple other things. Um, this I really loved because it's very seldom that we get, uh, we, we hear on the internet a lot, um, the view of the people who are the consumer base, but a lot of the times we choose to not see or the developers choose to not give their thoughts. Uh, and we don't choose to take those thoughts into a perspective with us, but in an interesting view from the creator and developer behind journey to the savage planet, he gives perspective from the developer side of recent move towards backwards and forwards compatibility stating quote, Sony and Microsoft seem to be thinking about releasing more updated hardware more often like phones. And so they need to make sure the software can stick around or they'll do terrible things to the de developers. But really, it just means we need to be we need to do more work supporting more platforms, which removes one of the best things about consoles, a reliable box with a long shelf life, end quote. And it's interesting that this goes back towards something I bring up a lot. That while I like to see the improved technology of like the Pro and the One X, mm -hmm. all it does is take away more and more and more and more from the whole point of a console, which is one individual box that you can endlessly optimize towards and really push to its limits, but always it's a known quantity. Um, and I thought it was interesting to bring that up because, you know, I think he's right. There is a, a thought process to, well, if we iterate and make the PS4 Pro, but let's say that uh, here we are. Uh, we made, we released PS4, it's 2013, right? We're planning to release an updated console in 2016 or 15. Um, and do we call, do we make it a PS4 that's improved or do we technically make it to PS5? And you have to go through and look and they go, well, we can't make it to PS5 because if we make it to PS5 and these games don't work on there, then we risk the software not sticking around long enough. We don't make enough money. We make it harder on developers. Developers don't see a return of investment. Uh, publishers don't see a return of investment. So we're going to make it to PS4 Pro, which is going to make it to where you can play all these PS4 games on it, and PS4 games can tap into that and do even more on it. But developers will still be able to tap into the original user base while still developing for what's essentially one system. But it's not. Yeah. And you know what's crazy, too? And I hate to say, say this because it's going to sound really negative and mean, but... It always seems like the people who are the, 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 they're the, they're the same people who do not want mid-gen refreshes because they, cause they'll say they don't want to spend the extra money three years later, but they're also the same people that want 10-year console lives. That doesn't make sense to me. Well, what do you, I, I, what you just said doesn't make sense to me, but maybe I misheard it. Well, so well you, you, everybody I've seen or talked to who are against mid-gen refreshes in the most extreme way, like they, they're not that they're impartial to it or anything like that, but they say that they should not exist. Also say that the consoles that they buy on day one should last them eight to 10 years. And I don't get that. I don't, I don't mm -hmm. get like how you want a single piece of hardware to last you that long with, with there not being any upgrades to the technology you're using. Like that, that's, that to me, for whatever reason, that does not make sense. We don't treat any other piece of technology in our life like that, ever. A phone, a computer, you don't keep the same. It's very rare somebody keeps the same computer for 10 years. But you don't, it's, it's, it's even more rare to see somebody keep the same smartphone for 10 years. It fits into that weird kind of thing of, you know, in order for technology to advance, then we can't let developers hold them back by just not having hardware release or even upgrades. And I think that technically with the way things work is that 
the pros could be called fives. They could be that could have been the PS5. That could have like it, it, it would have been stupid, but it could have been. Oh, it could have been. Yeah, but, I'm not saying it should have been, but it could have been, and it, I, I wouldn't have agreed with it. But then again, like we could have gotten, like because you think about it, that would have been four and a half years ago that that thing came out. Then we, we then we turn around, or was it four and a half years, or was it three and a half? I think that the both PSVR and PS4 Pro came out in 2016. Okay, so 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 a little over three years old at this point. Um, November 2016. Yeah, so a little over three years old at this point. So so now we would have gotten the PS6 coming November. They could have done it that way. I wouldn't have agreed with it. I would have thought that would have been dumb because the incremental update we would have gotten would have been worth a PS5 name for the Pro. Like, if that thing came out and was called the PS5, I would have not agreed. But I had expectations going into it thinking, okay, this is going to run games a little bit better. It's going to have a boost mode, and it's going to have bigger storage. That makes sense for next-gen. But I was talking to somebody, and I don't remember who it was. Wait, for next gen or just a, an update? Well, I guess I'm getting a little lost in what you're saying. It sounds like in one breath you're saying that the PS4 should have been called the PS4 Pro because it wasn't enough, but then it sounds like in the next no, sentence, no, no, it no. was enough. For I think I'm I think no. I'm misunderstanding you. Yeah. So what what I'm what I'm saying at the very beginning is that I find it weird that everybody I've ever met or talked to in real life that do not want mid-gen refreshes are the same people who want their consoles to last in 10 years they think that they with a console they should have to spend 500 every five years that it should last them and it does it just they may not perform as well as the the updates do so that was my point to that one the second point was that sony could have called the ps4 pro the ps5 it just would have been dumb to do so because and, the, and why do you think that? Just, well, for what, so I just, I'm, I'm for what I just said, you just with with the with the with the upgrade to the pro. I think that is especially for day one is for the hardcore users. They want the the few games that run more stable on it. They want the higher, um, they want the higher uh, uh, storage without having to tinker with it with themselves. They want 4K output. They want all this stuff. But I don't think that the tech itself was right in its time to be called the PS5. Okay, so but not Sony as, could have. Not as much of a jump as you'd typically want from, from a next-gen move. Yes, uh, or a which, full is why, next gen yeah, which is why that I think that every console gen going forward is going to have mid-gen updates. And if they don't, they're going to have very short gens. Okay, so you, okay, you kind of dealt with one of the things because going back to the very first thing, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with them. And I'm not saying you thought that either. Uh, no, I'm just saying there's definitely nothing wrong with the idea for anybody out there uh, who wants their consoles the last 10 years. Actually, Sony's uh, thing used to be, and I'm sure this is probably true of other manufacturers. I don't know for exact sure, uh, exactly, but uh, one of the things that Sony used to always talk about is uh, here's the PS2. Uh, here's the PS1. We want the PS1 to last 10 years. And that doesn't mean that we don't want to iterate on it and make another version of it w w until 10 years. But the idea is to have a, a system that can come out, sell for roughly 8 to 10 years, and have some form of support from some developers and publishers for 10 years. That was kind of their goal. That was always their plan. They did it with the PS1. They did it with the PS2. Uh, and each one of them did it. Uh, you know, the, the PS1, I think one of the last games that came out was in 2004. Um, the PS2, which came out originally in 2000, uh, its last game was like FIFA 11 or something like that. Um, 
So clear, or no, FIFA 14. It was something crazy. It was the it was it, the last game for the PS2 came out after the PS4 had released. Uh, just keep that in mind. So clearly, yeah. ten year lifespan. Now maybe not the, those last few years where there's just a wealth of games. No, but they were still there. Your console still worked and supported in some degree. And I think that's what some people are looking at. So I guess what's probably happening. I've never heard those people are not enough to for it to. We be know we know one of those people, and I'll tell you who it is off camera. Okay. Because I've, I've conversated with him before about it. And, I, and I've told him, I'm like, you know, you can't expect companies to not revise products bec- just because you don't want them to. Yeah, I think my view on that to kind of be in the in-between, like of understanding what they're going for, but also looking at the other thing is, um, I think the fear is that the the introducing of a mid-gen refresh and the idea of that into the console space, which has never really been done until this generation, realistically. Um, and we even saw Nintendo start to do it with the 3DS while we saw these other things going on. Um, but with that, the idea, I think, comes from the... I think it scares them into thinking that the more quickly that they iterate on things, the more quickly there'll be a need to completely get rid of these things. And the fear would be that Which is even, even, even quicker, they'd lose the ability to have people still wanting to make games for the original base PS4 um, 10 years out. I think yeah. that's probably the fear. Now, clearly, here's the thing. The Vita came out in 2012, and the Vita is still getting new releases today. Now, not just in an abundance, but this is, we're eight years now. We are at, we are at eight years, uh, and actually, I think it came out. Now that I'm really thinking about it, I want to say it was February 2012, but I want to double check that. Dang, was it? Yeah, um, it was December 2011 for Japan and February 22nd everywhere else. So yeah, uh, and I got February 14th, uh, 17th. I'm trying to remember. It was I got the week early edition because it was one that you could pre-order. But still, my point being. Eight years down the line, here we are still getting games for it. Um, and that's great. And that's a system that has otherwise been killed by Sony, but we're still getting that support. So I think that the fear, I understand how you get to that point, but I think Sony, even in their thing, has, has shown that even if they don't support it, their consoles and their tech gets out there and still gets supported. Where there is a will, there is a way, and there's always a group of people who really love hardware. Uh, you see that with things like GameCube and people who are still making brand new Sega Genesis games and crazy stuff like that. It's just going to be, it happens, you know? It's rare, um, but yeah, that's that's interesting. I don't know. My big thing is I, I could really understand how these things get harder. I think that there's a lot of developers that really like the idea of never having to develop games for PC because it's so much more daunting to deal with from a optimization side. There is something that has to be infinitely attractive to a developer to go, hey, here's one box, and, and this box is just this set of hardware, and if you make it for this set of hardware, it's going to work across all those systems, and there's something that's really great about that. Um, I know for me, that sounds like if I, if I was going to be making games, that sounds great. Mm-hmm. That sounds like, oh, there's a lot less chance for error on my side, a lot less chance that people are going to buy my game and not be able to play it because of a mistake that we made. Um, and definitely, man, can you imagine the how, how lucrative and great uh, the idea of a console must have been back when co- when computers did not have the – like when you couldn't patch games? Like a console used to be great because it's like, well, if you release a game on computer and, and it turns out that it just really doesn't work with a couple of different chipsets, it doesn't matter. Those people that bought the game now have something that's basically worthless because you can't really patch the game. Yeah. So now, you know, you have the ability to patch, but it just means that the fear for the developer comes from more work post-release. Um, so this this brings into the conversation, which is where it goes full loop-de-loop. How much would you pay for a PS5 now yeah. that it's been so long? 
so long since farewell <laughs> to you my friend but so long since what the launch of the ps4 okay original ps4 yeah for me and and this is gonna be interesting for you as well because you have at least got one you got one ps4 for yourself and one ps4 pro for yourself um wait so, what you bought a ps4 and you oh, had okay, that until yeah. you bought ps4 pro so you were technically yeah, but it's it was not, it wasn't for you specifically. Yeah, so that's what I mean. For you, you bought two that were aimed at you. The other one was technically for another person. Uh, whereas me, for myself, I am technically like what five, five PlayStations deep? in. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's going to be a little different. But both of us are at least more than one console in. So we're at least double the price of admission to an extent uh, into this. Mm-hmm. So when you look at that, for me, I have no qualms whatsoever. And my, my analogy, and I think a lot of people's too, but it's a, it's obviously a clear analogy in this day and age where people exist. And there is some great counter arguments as to why. Um, but people look at it from the, the point of what other tech can you buy? Going back to what, uh, what Saul was actually just talking about. Uh, what other tech can you buy that you don't replace on average every two to three years, five years max, right? Mm-hmm. What, other, what other tech do you buy that does that? Very, very little. Yeah. Very, I, the only thing I can think of literally is a TV. So, and that's just me. There are people who actually do that. Who yeah. will, every time, every two years, a new TV panel comes out, they'll get that panel. Yes, exactly. There are definitely people that do that. Yeah. There's on and across the board. And there's people that hold on to things forever. Yeah. I guarantee you, there are people that were so bummed that they were not going to be able to use normal cables on the PlayStation Four because it launched with HDMI only, and they thought, "Now I can't use my CRT, my, my RVC cables." Wait, uh, is it RVC cables? RCA, RCA cables. cables. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, but either way, uh, for me, I look at it from this standpoint. Uh, I replace my phone on average every two to three years, depending on what's going on and what happens to the phone. Kind of, you have to, you know, if you break your phone, you kind of got to get another one. Yeah. Uh, and you know, for me, I really in recent years have gone towards this idea of uh, what is the best performance bang for your buck. So, for example, I bought the One Plus Six T. I really, I really love the phone. I enjoy the phone. Cost uh, five twenty nine, and they take they cost roughly two hundred and eighty dollars to manufacture. Uh, now there's some other costs involved in there, like shipping and whatnot. But for the most part, you're looking at it costs the company two hundred eighty dollars, and then they're selling it to you for this markup. All right, so that's a pretty modest markup, markup, right? Three hundred dollars um, in that ballpark, depending on where you're at. Uh, then you look at people like uh, Samsung, who also make a phone that costs them about. to manufacture that sell for anywhere from $800 to $1,000. And you're looking at a much bigger markup. Uh, Then you look, you go to the furthest extent of that where you look at the iPhone that cost about $300 to make as well. It's in that ballpark, $250 to $300. And they sell it for anywhere from $1,100 to $1,300 depending on what you're getting. So when you go through and you start looking at all these things, um, to me, consoles are such a great value proposition for how long they last versus their cost of entry. So when you look at it from the standpoint of what Sony did coming into this generation, already making a very, very slight profit of like $8, uh, you know, if, if let's just say it was $8. So the PlayStation four sold for three ninety nine at launch and it cost them essentially $391 to make, right? That's just, that's what, well, that's the numbers we're going to use. What a ridiculous cost proposition because for what essentially means that they profited $8 off of, I have I have had the ability to keep, and technically I do, I have my 20th anniversary in there. So for $400, $500 because it was special edition, for $500, I've had that system in there still working perfectly and I can play any game that releases today on it 
and, and you're and, a $40 so Sony customer in a way. You have contributed exactly $40 to Sony, technically. Yeah. I mean, if you really want to go towards that. I have that. contributed 12 So when, when you go towards the thought of that, what other thing gives you that much entertainment and lasts that, or, or I should say, because that much entertainment's weird, but what other thing lasts for that many years, constantly giving you the ability to have entertainment through it? at that low of a, of a, of a cost of manufacturing a cost of sale. It's very rare. So, you know, right now, and what, it's very, and, and I was, I was thinking like PCs could technically be had for the same cost as consoles, but uh, that's a lot of manufacturing costs that they're trying to worry about. I'm not doing all that. Yes. And I don't even know it. And I'm not going to deal with that. I know. That. I know if it's a and D you, your manufacturing cost versus the cost of it. A, a pretty, Performance yeah, is better. Yeah. And by nature of them coming in, they forced Nvidia and Intel to start doing better as well uh, on all their stuff. Thankfully, but um, to, to answer the base question, as I've very longly went around, uh, I would be willing to max dollar myself six hundred dollars. That's, uh, that's my max. My ideal price, regardless of how much it costs them to make, my ideal price five hundred. If they can hit that, I think that'd be really great. So the the reason we bring this up is because it got news <laughs> that Sony it costs Sony four hundred fifty dollars to make a PS five. Roughly with what they have planned for right I now. think with how many re- how much revenue they made this past console generation, I think they're going to sell for five hundred, and they only make fifty dollars a, con- a console. So I want to back that up a little bit. Okay. So going towards what you're talking about, the real question here that a lot of people are dealing with is they're worried that it's going to drive the cost of consoles up because right now everybody's looking at this from the standpoint of that magic four hundred dollar price point that yeah. the PS4 was able to hit, and clearly was a good choice you're right so everybody's looking at this in the same ballpark so the fear that everyone sees from seeing this and the way that this is being worded by many people who are doing the articles is that there's a worry that the console is going to be more than that sweet spot goal that the consoles are going to be more expensive because it costs more money to make them Mm -hmm. so you know if we're looking at this, people are worried that because it costs four fifty to make, Sony's not going to be willing to lose fifty dollars per one to make the console still four hundred dollars. That's that's a thing. Um, the flip side of that from other people is okay, like people like me. Let's say that the console does take somewhere a little bit above four hundred fifty dollars to manufacture. If Sony sells it for five hundred dollars, I'm getting a really great piece of machine that can do a lot of things and last a long time for fifty dollars margin. That's fantastic. Yeah. For me, looking at, and don't get me wrong, there's people that don't have as much disposable income. So the closer you can get the, to that, you know, to zero dollars, the better. So if you get to 400, it's better. Uh, but I think from just looking at this effectively for me, uh, I think $500 would be a perfectly reasonable profit margin for them if they wanted to say, hey, you know what? We don't want to put ourselves in any kind of dire straits just because of this. Um, but just to throw this out there, this is also uh, one of those things where, even though we have this information, as long as it's accurate, and let's just say for the sake of argument here that it is, um, would Sony be willing to, for competition's sake, take a loss? Who knows? They could. Would they do it because Microsoft chooses to sell their, right now again, rumored to be more powerful console? The, if if Microsoft is willing to sell their console for 400 or 450 or 500 then there's more of a move on Sony to be like okay we're going to take a loss because we want to be more competitive and they very well might do that but for me right now 500 is where I think it probably will end up mm-hmm. where it probably should be 
And I don't think it's weird for Sony to want to go into the generation ensuring that they're not hurting themselves by losing per console, despite what they'll make up later. I think that this is smarter business than the original old school plan of, hey, we're going to sell the system at a $300 loss, but we're going to make that money up later. That's a very dangerous and dumb plan if you want to stay around as a business. You saw they they, they did file for bankruptcy. (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, there's clearly an effect on that. Yeah, Uh, And they had to. That's that's the the sad part. They had to. If they would have actually charged what the PlayStation cost them to make, definitely after all the problems they had with it it would have I mean, it would have been the death knell of playstation brand but here we are since this is a new generation and they don't have to look at any of that why not come in and i and i think the same for microsoft i don't think microsoft should come in try at a loss just to try and be more competitive but they might yeah yeah i, I see it I, I i get it and i, I kind of hope them the best when it comes to this so let's flip the question what would be the max price Let's say that the, the the Series X has a crazy great lineup full of the IP from Xbox that you actually love hitting day one. Let's just kind of bring it up like that. What would be the max you'd be willing to pay for the Series X? Six hundred dollars for both. Six hundred dollars is your max for both. Yeah, yeah I know that. Uh, what what it's worth is the inter- entertainment I'm gonna get out of it, the longevity I'm gonna get out of it. Whether that's three to five years is what I'm gonna assume, because uh, I know there's gonna be a console refresh, but. I also know that the, like I also can pinpoint what these consoles are doing in terms of tech. Like they 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 state they could do full on ray tracing. While I'm still really iffy about that, and if it's real ray tracing or something like they do with interpolation 4K. Just to give you a little sure. bit of a, a thing there, again, this is all rumored still. You know, we're at that point, uh, but from. Some people who have a thing, and these are reputable sources, uh, Digital Foundry, it looks like the Xbox is going to be slightly more powerful uh, and have better ray tracing than mm-hmm. the PS5, but the PS5 is going to have better speeds for RAM and, uh, and, and hard, uh, hard drive tech. So the SSD tech will be better. So it's like each system will have their own kind of their pro own and benefit. Pro, yeah. So, um, yeah. And, so and maybe I, there is something to maybe Xbox is extra powerful, uh, extra power. The extra roughly 1.5 to 2 teraflops is going to give them the ability to really do real yeah. ray tracing. And maybe PlayStation won't get real full ray tracing, but a weird form of it. But it, go ahead. Yeah, well, no, that's that's all I was pretty much saying was um, that I, I, I think that $600 is worth it for the tech that they both have them, in them. Granted, there's no first day falls, but I won't find that out because I'm going to probably buy both of them day one. So like that's the thing. Both of them day one. Oh, yeah, both of those day one. We, we talked about this. I'm going to sell off my Xbox Series X, I mean my One X, and then my PlayStation 4 Pro, trade those in a GameStop, take the store credit, buy a console with the, all of that for one, and then take my credit card rewards and buy another one for that. So I'm only going to end all up right. paying pay like 200 bucks for both these consoles. That's yeah. probably in. Somewhere like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyways, let's finish this off this episode with Anthem 2.0. All right. This is a big one. Uh, so this one's going to be a good spiel to have too that we can then discuss afterwards. So after months of rumors that BioWare was working internally on revamping Anthem with Anthem 2.0 or Anthem Next as it was both referred to, uh, there was a Kotaku piece back in November about it. BioWare head Casey Hudson finally revealed that to be true in a blog post for the studio. While not offering an exact timeline, the blog post touched on the core complaints and core needs of the game as outlined by the devs in the community and go on to talk about spending months quote just tearing it down and figuring out what it needed to change fundamentally which they also put a lot <laughs> end quote and that they followed that by months of rebuilding the game one thing they stressed was that they intended to do this all properly by quote doing something we'd like to have done more of the first time around giving a focused team 
the time to test and iterate, end quote. Uh, the current state of the game is still being supported with the shop updates, new events, and even something for the game's one-year anniversary planned for September February, uh, for September for Saturday, February 22nd. Um, so that's the, the starting point. But Saul, that's my big question for you. As someone who's still yet to actually fully on play Anthem, what does this I mean to you? I fully played Anthem. Just not much because of how trash it was at launch. Well, I guess what I should say is like you didn't beat the game. You've played less than ten percent of the game's content. There's no, there's no reason for you to look at this like it's something that you fully experienced. So, right. but there, it is something a, I fully paid sixty dollars to play. But it is something you fully paid for. So my question here, and I've I've seen this a lot from a bunch of different things when I was sharing this. Uh, one of our uh, friends and listeners and apparently i've closed the thing uh but mr tyler haynes if i'm remembering right um he mentioned you know what do you think on this because he, he's in the same boat as me he enjoyed the game but he thinks it definitely could have been better that's the thing the game was enjoyable i never had a problem with the actual game itself uh from a gameplay aspect and like that it for me like once i figured out the stupid boost mode and stuff like that, that was causing me frames we had fun playing the beta and on top of that the, the world is really cool. But once again, just like Final Fantasy, 15 was at launch. It was so bland. There was nothing special enough to pull me in about the world, about the characters involved, nothing. The gameplay loop was simply not good enough to keep me there. So, like while strong, it wasn't strong enough to support the whole game. I mean, yeah. Uh, it wasn't Put your strong. mic arm down. I don't know, like, over there. Oh, how'd that happen? I don't know. But uh, yeah, it was not. It wasn't strong enough in the sense to um, that ain't going down. But it ain't. It ain't coming off. I don't know what the, what happened there. All right. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it wasn't strong enough to keep me there uh, or fully invested emotionally into the game either. But you know, we've had these kind of comebacks before, and I, and I'm not always mad at a game because I spent money on it. I'm mad at the game for what I wanted it to be and how it disappointed me. Um, but it doesn't help that you spent money. Well, on yeah, and <laughs> yeah, I get it. Well, and, and that is more so of like I deserve. I, I almost deserve something better than this for the money spent. You know, Final Fantasy 15 and Anthem are both really good examples of how I hated Destiny after playing it at launch. I've I've said before multiple times, and I know you've heard me because I've talked about it. Destiny was at one point my biggest gaming disappointment ever, and it pissed me off. You know. It, it, it comes from a, these are all things. They come from a studio that I love. It comes from a games developer that I know makes better games than this. And it's touted as something that it ended up not being. All three of those hit that check mark for Destiny, Final Fantasy, and Anthem. Now, it's about how the game can then become something that I'll enjoy and love. Because as much as I hated Destiny 1 and was disappointed in it, it became some of my, it had some of my favorite gaming moments of all time in that game. Um, it goes, it needs to, we need to see how they're going to go about it. Are these updates going to be free? Are they going to truly live up to their word and fully redo this world like they're saying they're going to do? Is this essentially going to become like what Final Fantasy XIV did? And this is something that Final Fantasy XIV did really well. When they redid the game state, they tied it into the story. Make some kind of cataclysm event in that game happen so that it really does wipe out parts of the world that they have to rebuild. And then that's Anthem 2.0. Do it something cool in game because I wish I kind of wish Destiny did that, but um, do it something like that because if they want to become a games as a service, it's going to last. First of all, you're still adding and updating content to the game, which is fine, but you're not updating enough. 
And that could be because you're doing the No Man's Sky approach where you're working on that update. Yes. And I actually think, I mean, for me, that's where I think they should go. But I'll talk about all that in a minute. I'm going to go well, ahead and let you well, get it out. And that's, that's <clears throat> what I really hope this game ends up doing is becoming a new No Man's Sky where it, all the updates, they come to us because this is one of those instances where I can get where Final Fantasy 15, the DLC characters are worth the $5 and it should be $5. I will not pay for a single update for this game. I will oh, refuse. Yes. I will, th- and I still think it's morally long wrong that Final Fantasy should have technically included that into the, something for a, a discounted price. Um, the Anthem's update should be free, absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt. Morally and ethically, should be free for the, all those people that paid sixty dollars and played less than ten hours of it and left. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to fix this game state, that's something that I think that has to happen. Um, as a matter of fact, they can reinvent the game. And they can they can say this is Anthem 2.0, a cataclysm wrecked the world, and now you got to go out as a salvaged um, freelancer, and you have to go out and fix it. You're going to obtain new suits as you do this, new cores to fix your suits, and all that stuff. Forty dollars? Nope. Thirty bucks would be the most I'd pay for something that was an all-in-one fix if it didn't all come off like the cross, across time. But um, and even then, I would have to see review after review after review, and I'd still probably even wait a while. And even if you did it, you'd still kind of have that thing in the back of your head, like, "Why am I having?" It's to still pay for this? it's it's still the same with Royal Edition. Like, thankfully, Royal Edition was free on Games Pass. If I like Royal Edition enough, I will buy it on get on PS4 to show my support with money to say, "Hey, you changed your game, and you at least made a version that is better than what it was." And I want those trophies, but <laughs> that's pretty much my stance on Anthem. Like, I'm hoping it does come back. Do I think it will? No. Unfortunately not. Okay, so you've actually pretty much brushed up on all the stuff I wanted to very lightly, and that's good. Um, one of the things I really had as a... There you go. Look at that. We bought the most sturdy monitor arms there are in this world. I know that came up. Oh, I guess me doing like this, lifting it up. Okay, well, now we're in the same predicament. It was 10 seconds ago. Oh, well. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's obviously clearly not hurting anything, but you know what? If you're watching this, you get to see Saul standing up and, and doing a bunch of extra work. But yes, uh, so you brushed on most of the things that would actually be something that come up for me. Uh, so and, and, and Ty as well. Uh, Ty's first question when we were talking about it was, um, do you think this is free or do you think this is paid? And my immediate uh, obvious response was, this is free. Now, the other thing you brought up that before I get, dig into that one is that there are three really great games now, I think, and three really great examples of games like this um, that can really be used to show here. So one of them, and the probably one that's most similar to this game, uh, is Destiny. Mm-hmm. So Destiny, you're completely right. We all played it at launch, and I was incredibly disappointed with yeah. it. It's weird, too, because you have the same thing. We were all playing it together, and it's like, there's there's fun here there's fun here with the experience of friends but the world had none of it and then immediately once you get done with the very 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 little that the game had to offer and actually and this sounds like a controversial thing i actually as crazy as it sounds anthem was a more complete product at launch than destiny i would actually agree to that uh but i'm still gonna pull that back uh, because it doesn't necessarily matter the point being is that here's a game they had a lot of promise and a lot of stuff behind it. Very similar situation. You have a developer that everyone knows and loves, Bioware, uh, who you know are capable of making games that are much better to play than than what ended up coming and, and had much more depth. And, of course, they just happen to be a similar style of game. They're a looter shooter that lives on a ever-evolving, updating world. So, you know, 
you have you have Destiny as the first example. That's probably the closest example. You have No Man's Sky, which is a perfect example of a game that came out, had some stuff where people paid for sixty dollars for it at launch, and then the way they had to go about choosing to do things was to update very slowly while they back in the background worked on the catch-all, fix-all that they've continued to do and did entirely for free. Uh, and now here's where these two, uh, Destiny and No Man's Sky, first go into the thing. One of the big problems with Destiny is that Destiny's fix was almost entirely behind a paywall um, of the Taken King. Now, yeah. that one's the real interesting part. Uh, so if you look at these two, you have one that's probably the most similar example, but that chose to be fixed by a paywall. Mm-hmm. Hey, here's a game that is actually, and as someone who finally broke down and played it, played it, the Taken King was clearly the the saving grace moment for that series. Yeah, but you had to pay forty dollars at launch. And I don't think though that any of us paid uh, full price for Destiny at launch though, or, or not even at launch. I don't think you was paid. Did you pay sixty dollars for Destiny? No, I did not. I paid, I paid twenty dollars. Yeah, I was gonna say I paid. Tw- I think it was. Tw- I think it was actually twenty dollars at the time. But I had a gift card. Uh, I paid ten dollars. I, I, it was on sale for fifty. At Best Buy. No, you're talking about the Taken King. No, I'm talking about the original Destiny. Destiny oh, 1. I, I paid $20, and I don't remember how. When we were playing it on Xbox One. Yeah, uh, yeah. So my story for that is that uh, I had pre-ordered the Majora's Mask 3DS, uh, new 3DS XL. Uh, Best Buy let me go through, but then messed up and allotted, let more people pre-order than they had allotted. Yeah. So they gave me a $50 Best Buy gift card. It was not on sale for 50 It was $60. I paid $10 out of pocket for it. All yeah. I did was like, well, this is money I just got for free anyway. Y'all were wanting to play it, so I went and got it and paid $10 out of pocket. Uh, and I was really like, I remember when I beat the game, I said, I'm so glad I did not pay $60 for that. Joe gave me $40 for that game. That's what it was. <laughs> you got a good friend. I told, no, no, Joe wanted me to play on Xbox, which Joe only played with me once or twice on Xbox. Um, Joe wanted me to play, and Joe offered to give me he, he, he said, give me $20 and I'll get you the game. And I think he used his technical, like his Best Buy. Um, oh, discount and stuff too, yeah. Yeah, plus the, uh, the he had just, and I remember this now, he had just signed up for the, the, the Best Buy game reward thing they did for a while back. Yeah. It was like 20% off a game, I think. Yeah. Um, so That's yeah, I, I remember I paid $20 for Destiny, which I didn't have a problem paying $40 for uh, Taken King. Also, I was on another platform. Mm-hmm. And I don't even remember buying Destiny 1 on PS4. No, like you I, you got it with a Taken King. Okay, so then you that bought makes the sense. full bundle that came okay. out for sixty. So you actually so, spent sixty. So I actually did end up spending sixty, which yeah. at that point was worth it. But so, but see, this kind of goes back into it. I spent eighty dollars total for that experience, which is worth it in the end. But with Final Fantasy, this is where Final Fantasy fifteen gets me. You had to you had to have the season pass for twenty, and if you didn't. You still have to pay five dollars per episode, so twenty dollars anyways. But then Royal Edition comes out that's not part of the season pass at all. But if you had the season pass, you get the Royal Pack for five dollars cheaper. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, to try and not go too far. Oh, I've already done the math. One hundred five dollars total for Royal Edition <laughs> and everything. So, but going back to my original point, um, the the thing about Destiny is that they chose to fix it uh, in what I think is the worst way possible in terms of uh, the optics that you get from a PR standpoint. But since Destiny, for some reason, did, even though it was a very similar situation um, to No Man's Sky and, and, uh, and Anthem at launch, 
these types of games were newer. So Destiny kind of got the idea of like, well, hey, you know what? This is not a type of game we've seen done before. So we give them a little bit of a slide and here we are. At least in the long run, we got a good game. So the problem with Anthem versus Destiny is that Anthem was a game that's coming in on the same style that Warframe, Destiny, The Division had all come through and pioneered in their own ways and faltered in their own ways and then eventually got back on their feet. And then the the thought process behind Anthem was, well, okay, this game should come out. And I was, I fell victim to this. I thought clearly when you have this many games to look at, you can launch in a much stronger state than any of those did. And, and in some ways I think that was true. In some ways it was false well, I think for they, me. I think they all launched like, cause you look at all these games at a launch li- uh, lineup too. And you're like, Oh, these games are all competing, which means they're all pretty on par with quality. And then you look at what well, technically division was broken at launch. Yeah. <laughs> Destiny was broken at launch. launch. Warframe was, I think the only one that was not, broken. it was a broken. It was, it was a simple. There. It was, yeah. yeah, it was a simple. Uh, and then Anthem was in some shapes and forms broken at launch. Uh, and I got really lucky. and got to play the majority of it without problems. But didn't you, didn't you get the platform? that game yes i did I, I really enjoyed the game that's the crazy thing just like with destiny in the long run you end up enjoying it but um to go back to my point in this very free-flowing episode uh the third example is final fantasy 14 uh online all right those are the three prime examples that are the most close to what's going on here so that means that you also have three different plans of attacks of how you do it right mm-hmm. destiny was hey we're going to charge you for it it's going to be 40 dollars if you already own the game or 60 dollars if you want to you know like if you'd never bought anything which is good it means if you never bought the game the fix was essentially no extra cost to you but if you would bought the game you had to pay for the fix <laughs> um so with that in mind um when you're looking at it you have one that's paid, but very quick, one year. They turned Destiny's fate around in one year, a little over one year. Then you have No Man's Sky. No Man's Sky chose to do it for absolutely free. But took two years. But took roughly two years to get to the point that everybody really wanted it to be. Uh, but decent updates throughout the time. So, you know, kind of more similar to what Anthem is probably really doing. Small events and updates and stuff to try and appease the people who are still willing to play it while they wait to make it more appealing to everybody to come back in a new audience. I, then, do, I do think, though, that Bioware's name being in the mix is what causes people not to have the same temperaments as they did with No Man's Sky. Yes, Where people absolutely. actually kind of thought, oh, they're working on it, it'll be fine. Some yes. people thought they took money and ran. With, but there it's like, oh, it's Bioware, EA. It, it, well, No just, Man's Sky got that they took the money and ran because it was an unknown quantity for most people. I did see a lot of people say, though, that they are working on it silently. And that ended up being true. Yes, I never, I never believed and that. And I, I believed it was. I kept thinking, there's no way. Because you, you saw the way he talked. It was like, he clearly wanted this game to be this. And I think he was getting pressured into saying it was more I think Sony than it was. was putting the pressure on him. I, and who knows? It. But the third game, of course, and the most drastic example of this is Final Fantasy XIV, like we talked about. Uh, and that is a game that originally came out in 2010 and did not relaunch until 2015. 14 maybe uh, so again you're talking about multiple years uh completely restarting the game from the ground up and essentially paying for twice the development right um and then shoot and here's the thing for 14 if you bought 14 uh the original plan was for it to be a subscription-based game just like 11 online was 
it was received so poorly at launch and had so many issues that anybody who bought 14, the original version, could continue to play the game if they chose to do so for completely free up until we finally got A Realm Reborn. And A Realm Reborn said you didn't have to buy the game again. All it did was update your game, but then you had to start paying for the subscription. Yeah. But I think it got, I think it gave you a free month, actually, if you were one of the original purchasers. So my point being here is that you have three very different plans of attacks. Uh, you have one that is paid, but is very quick, one year in the ballpark of half of the ball uh, cost of the game. Uh, then you have two years, a little, a little more time, but completely free. Then you have essentially completely free, but four years and a drastic overhaul that is unlike anything. Uh, no Man's Sky has continued to do that, but they chose to do one release that really brought the game up and in a good spot for people's eyes. And then every year just continue to do something big to it. Um, so no man's sky is like the perfect in between of all those, but now it comes down to which one's most important for Anthem. Well, we already clearly know that it's not going to be the one year thing because here we are at the one year anniversary and the fix is not ready. Yeah, but that's okay. So now we go towards the thing of my landing answer has to be that this has to be free. It does. And that's, Th- that's this is at the point where now it's too long. Yeah. I think that you'd have a better chance at telling people to, Hey, pay 20 to $30 for this. And this is going to be a, the, uh, the same amount of quantity as the first game of content. You're going to have a whole new storyline and all this stuff, as well as fixes for the new stuff or for the old stuff and all this new stuff, but it's going to be $30, $40, whatever. But it's, but it only took us a year because we really dug in and did this. And that's where the money was going after it was us making sure that we could pay these people to go in and fix this game. Well, now you're kind of at the standpoint of we're, we're past a year. We or we're coming up to a year. There is no dead plan of when this stuff is coming and we don't quite, and it's not even like a breakdown of what's coming. It's like, we understand that it's got to be all different and we're working on that, which all sounds great. It mm-hmm. does, but it sounds great in a very vague way. Yeah. So, and, and, and it's one of those that like, it sounds great yet. I'll, I'll put money in those words when I see it. Yeah. I think, and I think that's fair. So for me, I think my thing I kept saying was the PR had to be that this was a free update to make up for all the loads of bad PR they got. Uh, and to me, EA would be foolish not to go the No Man's Sky route because going the Destiny route, Destiny was out before No Man's Sky and it was uh, the Wild West in terms of this type of game. So there was a lot more that happened. But now that No Man's Sky has come out and showed you what you can do and how strong of a community you can build around a game that once had the majority of the community viciously hating it, it goes to show that with the right moves and the right PR behind it and the right dedication, you can turn this game's fate around. And what you'd essentially do is for all the people who've already bought the game, you would restore their faith and give them something to play. And for all the people who were on the fence about the game, you would bring in new customers that go, finally, this game is what it should have been. And now I can pay $60 for it uh, and get something really great out of it. And I think you get the best of both worlds. And that's exactly what happened with No Man's Sky. Everyone who bought the game day one on all the hype, eventually got a great version of the game. It's unfortunate that they had to pay up front so early, but they at least still had the ability to play a game that was there. And then it gave so it gave rise to so many new customers that clearly it was to the benefit of hello games because they are clearly still around working on new games, diversifying who they are as a company and doing really strongly. So it goes to show that there is a correct way to do this. And if you want the closest chance to success to me, this is how you do it. Yeah. No man's got route. It has to be. So for community's take, sure. What do we want to do? <laughs> mm. I'm thinking, you know what? This this episode had lots of news in it. It was loosey goosey. What if we just did this for every episode? 
we will definitely see how that goes down. I guess what I should say is this this will be our because it's 150 episodes, our community stake is gonna be have you enjoyed the majority of these 150 episodes? And do you think there's anything that you would personally change about the show to make it more enjoyable to you? Boy, that's gonna be I wanna let everybody know we're gonna get so many different answers. We're not gonna be able to take any of these answers. No, I love it. Seriously. Because, no, I wanna see it because I wanna see how many people go, Brett is too fence sitting, Saul's too crazy, or something wild. I don't Saul, care. You Saul, just tell me. Saul hates Sony and he's an Xbox sleeper agent. He's an Xbot. <laughs> he's an Xbot in disguise. <laughs> um, but anyway, that's where we are. And I mean, it's a weird community stake, but when we're doing a celebratory episode like this that doesn't have a main topic, I mean, I guess it could have been about Anthem. But it just seems at this point. I got a fun thing. You got you got a free 30 minutes when we're done? Sure. You want to go to Walmart and see if I can find the back uh, buttons for the PS4 controller? No. Oh. Yeah, Saul, I'll Saul's had the, the adventure of not being able to find these. Oh, yeah, it's pissing me off because people are saying that they're limited in production. And it's like, okay, so now the scalpers are getting them. But I'm going to post a fun little Twitter status saying, yes, I did find them, or no, I didn't. And only people who watch the end will understand what that meant because I'm going to be very vague about it. But we thank you all for 150 episodes. We hope you enjoy the show. I'll let Brett take us to our wonderful Patreon subscribers. Thank you all. Thank you, guys. Love you. Thanks to our patrons, Dan, Barber, Josh, Jarrell, Matthew Green. My name is Dan Douglas Below, Sean Santarud, Eric McAllister, Matt Sycamore, Funk Turkey, Danny Villalobos, Shadowist, Stephen Salazar, The Stoner, Travis Below, Eduardo Palomino, Stefan Swanland, Coy Live, Philip Laguerre, Corey Hickerson, Solitary Red, Brian, Donovan Williams, William Digital Spooker, Derek Porter, Josh Ayers, Brandon Edwards, Sean One Neo, Tyler Powers, Dylan Kirby and Sand Coffin. I keep forgetting to take on there. So free shout out to our boy Chad. And uh, lastly, if you are a patron who has uh, been wondering about the cases, I've just been incredibly busy. I will be posting about those very soon and we'll start working on the ones for this quarter. But we love you. Thank you. If you'd like to support the show, uh, go over to patreon.com slash Nartech. Thanks.